Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today, we have a special guest on the podcast, Brendan. He was introduced to me by Catherine, my cousin, who is actually a colleague of mine at Antioch University, Seattle. She told me, oh my God, I have this student at Antioch. You have to have him on the podcast to talk about a lot of different things, uh, namely old Seattle, grunge culture, music culture, mental health, all that kind of stuff. This discussion, I don't know how relevant it's going to be to uh, mental health uh, interested listeners. So, you know, we'll just see what happens. But I, I, I wanted to talk with Brendan because I like reminiscing about the old days. And so <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, find out what his experiences were and, and, you know, see maybe where we overlap at all. So welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Thank you, Kirk. Good to be here. Yeah. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a a therapist and a professor at Antioch along with uh, your supervisor, Catherine. Um, So, Brendan, uh, where do you want to start? Wow. Um, Big question. Um, Because I could start. Yeah, I'd like you to throw the rock in the water first. How old are you? I'm 51. Okay. So I'm 49. Yeah. And uh, and where did you live in 1989? Oh, my God. Um, where did I live? Which I sort of consider to be like the, the ramp up of grunge. Yeah. You know, in 89, I was actually, I think I was still trying to be a college student in Ellensburg. Okay. Um, at Central, Central Washington. Yeah. Um, but I got c- more caught up with hanging out with the Screaming Trees and um, perhaps indulging in some drinking and forgetting about my studies a bit then. Okay. Back then. And so Screaming Trees are from Eastern Washington. Did they go to Central Washington? Yeah. I don't know if, uh, if they were enrolled at all. I, I want to say no. Maybe Mark Pickerel was. Okay. But I don't, I, I can't remember. But um, but yeah, they they grew up there. Um, okay. So I had a great chance of hanging out with those guys a lot. So if you don't know, uh, Ellensburg, middle of Washington State, it is uh, such a farming beef town that as soon as you come in off the mountains, you get this waff of of dung and and <laughs> old beef factories. Yes. And um, and Central Washington University is in that town as well, and so. You have all these farmers and beef people and Central Washington, you know, generational people. And then you have this influx of college people uh, who are who don't really fit in culturally, shall we say. And so you went to Central Washington and the Screaming Trees. And so, again, if you're not aware of early Seattle rock or I guess early 90s rock, this conversation might not be very interesting to you, but... For me, the Screaming Trees were uh, a really special band to me. Uh, the uh, the singer Mark, what's his name? Lanigan. Lanigan, yeah. I, I followed his career. You know, he had a solo. I think he's still solo right now, yeah. if I understand. Yeah. And I've just always respected his um, artistry and his dedication to not doing poppy things and I think he's still in Seattle, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it, Mark lives uh, in L.A., house, okay. in the L.A. area. I know where oh, – I'm going to keep it like yeah, kind, yeah. Of, kind of covert. But, yeah. So you knew the Screaming Trees yeah. when they were small. This was before yeah. they got big. They were probably playing clubs. They were probably – Hal Home Center, which okay. is a famous venue that Nirvana played. Well, actually, the Nirvana is famous. I don't know if Hal Home Center is famous, but – 
But um, the trees played there with Nirvana a few times. Okay. um, So the Screaming Trees always seemed from just the way they look like a party band. Uh, (laughs) The two guitarists just looked like they could have have good time. They did have good times. Yeah. That was a really fun band um, with, uh, as most are, in my opinion, like diverse. My famous bands almost have so many, like they have so many similarities amongst the guys, but then they're so diverse as well. Um, and it leads to this sort of tension that creates what they had. And Mark Lanigan was no stranger to tension. And what do you mean? Um, I, I, we always used to call Mark like a 50, 60 year old man in an 18 year old body. Um, his soul and his being, it's like, he was a, um, a curmudgeon is not the right word, but sort of a sort of a grumpy soul even then. And it wasn't a joke. It wasn't a put on. Yeah. He was just this guy. Like. Well, that's really interesting because it matches his artistic style. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. So did you know or did they know they were going to be big one no, day? Not a clue. Not a clue. Yeah. No. Um, no. I mean, there were shows, um, um, you know, at... Uh, I think they were, I don't know if we, they rehearsed at New World Video, which was a, a video store, D, uh, not DVD even, a VHS video store in downtown Ellensburg that the Connors' parents own, Van's parents and Gary Lee Connors' parents, bass player and guitar player. Um, so they rehearsed in the back and sometimes they would rehearse while they're open, which was great. You walk into the video store and it's just, you know, you hear booming in the back and the Connor parents were totally proud and supported them in their arts. And um, it was just a cool vibe. And so I kind of gravitated to that more than the books, I suppose. So just to, because uh, I'm interested in this, uh, are, have you been in a band? Yeah. Yeah. So you've been a musician over the years. Um, and uh, so have I since since high school. And I've been in that space of practicing where you can um no one really wants to hear you you play small clubs you drag your friends and their friends yeah um, um they say yeah it's good or whatever but was were the screaming cheat did you when you saw them were you like oh my god these are these guys are amazing no i mean we like looking back at those times we there was only a couple bands that we saw that we thought oh my god this is unreal the rest just seemed like what we were supposed to see, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like they were, we enjoyed, uh, when I say we, I'm just, I've had these discussions with, with friends about the past. We knew what was going on, meaning we knew there was some cool stuff happening. We didn't know it was going to be called the Seattle scene or grunge or anything like that. But I, yeah, I didn't look at that. I didn't have that sort of, um, sort of A&R mentality of a talent scout to go, wow, they're amazing. I was just in, hanging out with them you're drinking, going to show. Well, for me, yeah. in the uh, late 80s, you had all the hair metal bands, and yeah. you had all the R&B acts that were big, and you know you had Whitney Houston, and Janet Jackson, yeah. and Michael Jackson, yeah. and Vixen, and Poison, and Motley Crue, and you know you had bands like uh, Queensryche, which was from local, but definitely- Bellevue, I think. What? Bellevue, think Bellevue, right, exactly. But had a much- sort of, um, I don't know, poppier sense of how to dress and how to act and the way to sing, you know, the guitarists were good at their instruments, you know, and trained good. Yeah. And you, uh, 
hear these local bands and yeah. they were just like my band we we no one all of and i remember hearing bleach and just thinking like okay you know it's fine yeah. you know it's not amazing but uh but and there were countless other uh bands that i heard that were just as good as bleach um or that style of like not really caring how you sound in a certain way you know it was a very lo-fi sound it was okay to not know how to play right and not care that much about how you come across i mean so the bands i was in at this at during that time um you know there there was that dichotomy that i think uh a lot of the bands did kurt cobain included which was you know, secretly wanting to be big and famous, yeah. but like also really strongly holding the value of like, I'm not going to try that hard. Yeah. If it happens, great. And I'll, I'm not going to shy away from it, but I'm not going to beg for people to listen. And I'm not going to write songs that are geared, yeah. that are obviously geared towards entertaining. And I remember when we would play during that time and it, it was before Nirvana and all those other bands. I remember just as a story. So, nineteen eighty nine, yeah, nineteen eighty nine. Me and my uh, friends, we were in a band in high school, and we had written this song to play at the talent show. And it, I think it was the last uh, they were putting us on at last. You know, the sort of final finale of the talent show at high school, and we'd written this song, and and uh, we're about to go on stage. It's literally like five ten minutes before we're about to go on stage. And the three of us are talking and we're like, you know, I don't want to play this song. I think it's kind of dumb. I don't know who said that. And then we were just like, okay, well, let's just, let's do something else. And we're like, okay, well, what do we do? And we're like, I don't know. What if we, what if we just did something that really annoyed everybody? And we're like, oh, that sounds fun. And George Bush was president at the Mm. time. And so we did this whole thing about, or I made this whole song about Nixon and Bush, you know, the first Bush. And we ended up throwing our guitars in the air. And then two years later, we see all the bands on MTV, two or three years later, Nirvana, all these other bands, dressing the way we dressed, talking the way we talked, not giving a fuck the way we didn't give a fuck, uh, giving a big finger to the audience a lot of the times. And um, I think the Screaming Trees and, you know, I don't know about you, it's where, you know, that cultural zeitgeist from the Northwest that um, for a weird second became the biggest thing in the world. Weird second, weird decades. (laughs) Um, But yeah, uh, the it it is unbelievable to think of how big the, the scene and the bands and Seattle became on the map. Um, no one cared. Like you were flipping off, throwing your guitar, um, and that was happening in your vacuum somewhere. And then in Ellensburg, it was happening. It was happening in Montesano. It was happening in Aberdeen, and it was happening. Right. You know, and, and where did that come from? You know, because it was like, yeah. we, where did we get it? Blue from? collar, merge. You know, for me, I think it's a it's a hybrid. From I mean, listen, anybody that says they're not a metalhead from Seattle is lying. I think, <laughs> because metal is Seattle. You, you talk about Queensryche, there's Metal Church, yeah. um, there's these other metal bands, and, you know, Jerry Cantrell, Lane Staley from Alice and Chains used to be in metal bands. Alice is a metal band right. to me. Um, and 
Sound, early Soundgarden. Early Soundgarden. Yeah, that's metal, but it was different metal. You yeah, know? But it, better um, metal. It was better metal. It was yeah. interesting. It was more thoughtful, and yeah. but it was hybrid in a sense that it had that angst and dirtiness of punk rock, but it did not have the glam piece to it. So right. Seattle dropped the glam, right? And and had a lot to say because we were in a vacuum up here. No one wanted. No one wanted anything to do with Seattle. Right. Bands would stop touring. Uh, when they look up at the, they look at the map and they're like, no, I'm not going all the way up there. Right. You know, especially when you start hitting the months of winter. Yeah. You know, no bands are coming through here. Yeah. So uh, it was amazing did, to get touring bands come through early on at like Gorilla Gardens and, and Metropolis to have like Sonic Youth come all the way here. And Black Gorilla Flag. Gardens, was that in Seattle? Yeah. It was a punk club on Fifth and Jackson that I used to go uh. to all the time. Because I, I I remember the Central being around yeah. back in the day. I also remember the Ditto. Do you remember the Ditto? Yeah, of course. Do you remember the owner of the Ditto? I remember of the owner, but I, I don't... I can't remember his name. Yeah, he was yeah, an yeah. Italian guy. Yeah. And me and my... I was best friends with my guitarist, you know, uh, in my band. Um, we both play guitar. And, and we spent a lot of late nights uh, at the Ditto uh, with the owner... Um, and so there was, so there was the ditto. There's Squid Row. I don't remember Squid Row. I remember OK Hotel. Oh, definitely OK Hotel. Um, there was an interesting thing that happened in Seattle, which is a, which is seems like a good jump in to do this. In you know seventy nine to eighty five, there was like the Showbox. There was Graven Image, which was run by Larry Reed, who used to manage uh, the Human. Um, he has Fantagraphics books now and. Um, Georgetown, in, uh, Georgetown. Yeah, so go check that out. Yeah, um, and um, DIY was in full. Do it yourself was in full, full fledged. Yeah, underground fanzines. Fanzines and... were started. Um, you know, touring bands would come through. Circle Jerks, Black Flag, um, Bad Brains would come in. You know, it's like amazing stuff was coming through. Minutemen, Husker Du, all these great bands uh, that were called alternative uh, were yeah. coined. Um, we're finding their way up here. And our bands, you know, there were bands here like the Farts, Soldier, um, early punk rock stuff that ended up being the formation and the ground, uh, the, the foundation of what everything was built on. Yeah. I mean, you can't have it. You can't have all the success without all that. So what happened was they had the Gorilla Garden or well, Metropolis opened for a short stint. And I say, I say this with, I mean, not knowing everyone's calendar in the world, of course, but maybe one of the best 18 months of shows in, in his, a club's history in terms of what I loved. Unbelievable shows um, that were there um, weekend after weekend. And that was over on uh, 2nd Avenue and Pioneer Square, 2nd and Main. It's a teriyaki place now. Huh. Um, anyway, that ended, and then it went over to the Gorilla Gardens, 5th and Jackson. Um, and... Then in 1985, it was the the Teen Dance Ordinance. So, did put, you go to high school in Seattle? Just to chime in here, um, I was I went South End, so um, I didn't up, go in Seattle proper. Yeah, with my my mom, I was living with my mom in the South End, so I like always take or? buses in Auburn, actually. Oh, Auburn, yeah, okay. yeah, way out there. Yeah, and uh, before I moved into the city, yeah, um, I grew up in Sammamish, if yeah. you know where that is. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. outside the city as well. Um, so the, the 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 teen dance ordinance basically there was a death at the monastery the goth club and it was a a, a kid that was um, had parents that were uh, dignitaries in Seattle of sorts and 
you know, had some power. And they were pissed, obviously, that their daughter had died, the drug overdose. And they went after the club, and it was just, there were all these little brush fires underneath. The the city could not understand who these kids were with the punk rock, and they wanted wanted us out. And this was the straw. And it, it... they put in an effect called uh, an order called the Teen Dance Ordinance, which basically shut down every all ages club in Seattle. Every one of them in '85 shut down. Wow! And you couldn't get a venue to so open. So you you were young at the you were like yeah I was like 14 m- middle school yeah 14, 14 high school going yeah. to these places yeah 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 yeah. So these are all ages, not just 18 and up, but they were kids too. All ages. Wow. Yeah yeah yeah. Like you know, there were some younger kids than I was there. Um, so you were weird. cooler than I was because I was going to, <laughs> I was going to places like Omni, in, mm-hmm. and um, I remember those in Renton, right? Yeah, and it was it was all that. ages. I remember and, the Omni, and they had um, the top forty dance yeah. room with you know Scritty Politi and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but then they had the the uh, the sort of goth yeah. dance floor, and so that's where I would go with like Depeche Mode and that yeah. kind of stuff. But I I didn't even know about this other scene. Yeah. Yeah, well, on. that's the thing that's so beautiful about it. It set up the groundwork, and then all of a sudden, it ended. It was just this end. So we had to go to Natasha's in Bremerton. So we'd take ferry over, and there's that famous Kitsap Ferry riot that happened after the GBH show over in, uh, I think it was at Natasha's. Why riot? Uh, just punk kids. Yeah. And taking seats apart on the boat, and it was just a madhouse. Um, I wasn't actually on the boat. I remember wishing I would have been on the boat when I was a kid. But, you know, um, the police were waiting for everyone when they got to Coleman Dock in Seattle. And, and so um, a lot so of folks this got like arrested. But advertising the rocket or were people just knowing where to go? Never. Or? Yeah, we just knew that. We always talk about that now, too. Is like, how did we know where to go? Yeah. And that kind of gets to the flyers. Like, okay. I would go to shows and I would put flyer. I would take flyers down, which those that don't know what a flyer is, it's a 8 by 10 or 8.5 by 14 or 11 by 17 Xerox, essentially, um, yeah. are, they call them offset copies. And I would hunt all of the shows. So I would go basically look at the look at the telephone poles and the walls and see what was coming. Yeah. And I would take them down, fold them, and put them in my pocket. And that was how I remembered the shows. So I think if you look to your left, you'll see an old flyer maybe that I put up. Do I have a flyer over there? I don't see one. Oh, well, I I used to have one up there. Yeah. Of my band, you know what I mean? Oh, cool. The, yeah, of, yeah. Of, of where probably three <laughs> three people showed up, you know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, that was a big part of being in a band back then was you would go to like a, a Safeway or something yeah. with the 25 cent copy machine yeah. or five cent or whatever. And you would uh, try to create something that would entice people to come. And you're trying to advertise the style of music because there's no way to go on Spotify and there's find not, out yeah. what does this band sound like. You, you have to look at this black and white uh, flyer and figure out, is this the sort of event I want to go to? Yeah. Or are people going to be there? And you so um, and because of uh, the fact that none of us had computers or, you know, or whatever kind of programs you do. Nothing. You, you're, yeah, you just have pens and, <laughs> yeah. and you have magazines that you could pull like yeah. pictures from, but, you know, you got to get your Reagan, you know, picture in there or something. Yeah. And, and uh, you try to make it seem cool. And, uh, and so I remember spending a lot of time on the, on those things. And then yeah. stage two is like, okay, well now we got to put them all up. Yeah, you got to put them all up. Did you know Chad Slam Blake? No. His name was Slam Hate, we called him. Uh, he, he, I don't know where his nickname ever came from, but, um, 
and his name is Chad Blake. He was um, the poster hanger. So you'd give him like ten bucks, and he'd and just go all over. He'd go, yeah, he'd go around the whole city, and he would put your posters up everywhere. And if you knew Chad, you know you had a good thing going because he would he would spread the word and all the right telephone poles. Oh, yeah. um, he's still around. He works at the market. So um, shout out to Chad if you ever hear this. But anyway, and now you have an art project coming. Yeah, up. yeah, and, and and so these flyers that we were using back in the day to get the word out, the do it yourself model, because no one cared, no one wanted to help us. So we were, everyone was just figuring out how to and do it on their own. By the way, it still kind of is that way t- yeah. today. I mean, now flyers are on Facebook, you know, for example. Yeah. But it, it's, the tradition lives. The tradition lives, but the, the, um, the uh, I guess the medium is, the medium is different. The, the tools yeah, are different. The tools are different. Yeah, yeah. like now you have pretty, Which, you, have, you have free software in your computer that yeah. probably allows you to, you know, composite sure. a, a thing. Which makes them cleaner yeah. and, you know, different yeah. than but they But people were. will make a composite on their computer that yeah. make them look grungy, you know what I mean? To yeah, yeah, of course. Give, give that flavor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the cut-up letters and all the great stuff that came out with collaging flyers and all that stuff. But, but yeah, so I collected throughout my lifetime, and I have a pretty great collection. That I'm actually selling pieces of it here and there. But I have a show right now up at Cafe Vita in Seattle. It's um, um, an artist. Which, which Cafe Vita? Cafe Vita on Capitol Hill. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I look at them as art. They're yeah. Art. And and well, so you've I, been to the Central. They have that yeah. whole one wall with just all those old. Yeah, I got uh, a bunch of old Central flyers too. Yeah, Soundgarden. Yeah. Right, bunch of stuff that uh, the old, the old Central was a, a great stomping ground. Um, but yeah, so Vita, the flyers are up. His name's Raymond Pettibon. He was born Raymond Ginn. He's a brother of Greg Ginn, founding member of Black Flag. Raymond created all the art for the band. The four bar logo. Oh, he did. The everything. That he was a decided geni- in the name. Everything yeah. is Raymond Pettibon. That was genius because when I was in junior high, I remember seeing a lot of people with black flag written on their, you know, folder or this sort of thing. Um, also, obviously, Dead Kennedys. So it was, it was black flag, Dead Kennedys. And I, I was, I'd see that stuff, and I, and I considered myself to be not uncool. And I'm like, are so you're cooler than I am, you know? And and I, I remember like I there's went to, another level. Yeah, I'm like, who are these people? And I went to a house party one time, and I finally got my hands on a on a Dead Kennedys a record, and I was like, this must be the best music. I mean, I, I see this this symbol everywhere. It's you know graffiti. The DK. In, yeah, yeah, in the bathroom. I put it on on the record player and I listened to it and I'm like, this is shit. I mean, Dead <laughs> Kennedys. You know, it's an acquired taste. You know what I mean? Black Flag too. I, I mean, mean, I guess all of it is. And you know, that style of punk. Just yeah. to let you know, yeah, is yeah. not for me. Uh, Husker Du was one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah. Uh, some people would put them in the same category. I do not. Um, so you know, Screaming Trees, uh, Husker Du. Um, to some extent, Circle Jerks, I, I really liked. But when I got into the Black Flag, Dead Kennedy stuff, it's just like, I, I get the appeal, particularly live. I can't imagine seeing them live. It must have just been It was incredible, amazing. yeah. They were but great. hearing them on vinyl, like in on your tiny little hi, hi-fi, you know, <laughs> yeah. stereo, it was just like, I don't know, not for me. So then I started going around in school and like thinking, there's no way that that uncool kid likes Dead Kennedy. And so I would I would say, what's your favorite Dead Kennedy song? And they'd be like, oh, well, I don't know. And then me and my friend figured out like 99% of people with Dead Kennedys and Black Flag things on their folder. I have no 
clue. Have no clue. No. But but it was the it was what the symbol meant. I mean, you saw that you saw that black yeah. flag four bars. Yep. You were saying something about yep. yourself. Still to this day, yeah. you know, people rip off or uh, let's see, let's see, maybe not rip off. Some do. Greg Ginn will find you though. I will uh, let you know that um, he will find you if you're ripping off black flag. He is. He had a cease and he put a cease and desist on me when I was trying to sell a couple black flag shirts online. Oh. Um, he had SST Records shut me down for selling black flag shirts. He is all over that. That's why he's, you know, um, probably still successful in his own way. But that's also why he's not liked by a ton of people, and he's the only original member of Black Flag. But you wouldn't have <laughs> it any opinion. You wouldn't have it any other way, right? It's not like if when you're in Black Flag, you're out to make people like you. You know what I mean? No, but when you when you don't pay bands and you don't pay your own band members, and oh. and you're running SST Records, which uh, Soundgarden had a record on, Screaming Trees were on SST. Um, a lot of great bands. SST had a lot of cool stuff, and Pettibon did all the artwork. Yeah, for all that stuff. So anyway, this flyer shows up at Vita through the end of February, and um, you know, what's I the, the response? It's been great so far. I've actually sold three pieces. Um, Which ones? Like, I sold the first proper uh, uh, LA show at the Hong Kong um, for Black Flag. Okay, and was it a Black Flag fan or? Or was it? Uh, yeah, he's a he's a fan of um, Black Flag. He's also a fan of Pettibon, actually. Oh, okay. He thought um, he was going to see Raymond Pettibon at the show, and he, oh. saw, he was disappointed to see me there. But <laughs> he um, he was fa- he was floored by it. He bought a set list from the Mountaineers show, okay. nineteen eighty four, uh, in Seattle. It was a set list that I ripped off from the stage. Do you and, keep all your old flyers for your band and your old set lists? We don't have any of that stuff. I I have. I don't even remember having a set list I, on stage. I, I kept. I, I I've yeah. kept a lot of that stuff. Yeah, like uh. I don't even remember the songs we played. Like, like a set list on the back of um, <laughs> like a what do you call it? A, a flyer? No, like oh. a, what do you put under a beer bottle? Oh, a coaster. A coaster, right? Mm-hmm. So backside of a coaster, that mm-hmm. kind of. Um. So I want to get back to something. Yeah. Uh, and hear your experience of it because it. Um. I, I'm I'm just curious. You know, as you said earlier, growing up in Seattle or the Seattle area, uh, we were like the ignored part of the country. Yeah. And if people did know anything about us, they thought we were like Alaska, you know, or, you know, I don't even know if they said it rained all the time. They probably just said it was like, I don't know. It's like the wilderness. It's like we're bears and and Sasquatch, you know, Bigfoot. And that's all that they knew, if anything. Yeah. And so um, I grew up in a time thinking, you know, working class, Boeing, uh, a lot of, you know, guys with riveting on the side of a, of a, of a, of a plane and their wives and their kids. My dad worked at Boeing. My aunt worked at, you know, I had a lot of people. And so uh, when I would travel, uh, would wouldn't be that often. People would say, "Where are you from?" And I'd be like, "Oh, I'm from the Seattle area." And people would be like, "Huh?" And I just remember it. It, it you know, I'm I'm guessing currently other places in the United States where it kind of be like that. I guess maybe Anchorage. If people say they're from Anchorage, there's not a lot of pride where you can like go to other places and be like, "That's a cool city." As soon as Nirvana became big, within within weeks. The, it just completely shifted, and it never looked back. I, whenever I travel now, people, I say, I'm, you know, I'll be in France. I'll be like, I'm from Seattle. Like, oh, Seattle, that's cool Nirvana. place. Yeah, they'll say Nirvana and huge band, Still, but also bigger like, than they were then. Now. Right, and so it was this total change, and I didn't realize it at the time. I remember uh, 
uh, noticing a bit of it on MTV. They were doing like a red carpet event or something. And they were asking, or maybe it was in the Oscars, and they were asking people, uh, and they asked, um, what's her face from Fatal Attraction or anyway, they asked her, you know, what's your favorite Seattle band, you know? And she's like, oh, well, Soundgarden, you know, they were asking all these celebrities. Yeah. That was the main question of the day was like, what's your favorite Seattle band? Yeah. And, and so, um, suddenly now I had all this pride of where I was living and it was never apparent to me as much as I had some friends who were women. They went down to LA and LA was always like way cooler than Seattle was. LA was just like, you know, a billion times cooler music, you know, culture. Oh, I mean, it had everything, film, TV, the beaches, music, yeah. beach, and celebrities, C- the yeah. Lakers, yeah. everything. And Seattle was just like this, <laughs> shit town you know lunch pail town like you described yeah like uh, marshy and gross and you know moldy and mildewy kind of is yeah yeah and so um my these women they went they're friends of mine they went you know they're 22 or whatever they go down to la and they come back and they're like so i was at this restaurant and these guys came up to me and they were hitting on me and they said uh hey we're from you know we're from seattle and the girls were, were like, oh, we're from Seattle, too. What part of Seattle do you live in? And the guys were like, oh, um, well, you know, like Seattle. I live in Seattle. Well, w- what part of Seattle? Oh, well, you know, just in Seattle. Like, they weren't from Seattle. That, yeah, right. They were lying. That was their pickup line. That they, yeah, Seattle yeah. was such an impressive yeah, city yeah, yeah. that it was literally how some guys are trying to bag babes. That was their initial thing and and it apparently maybe it worked or they thought it would work or something but um what was your experience of that yeah i mean i remember being in on uh, on a trip i was touring with a band and i ended up in new york and and i had a my my friend had a his father worked for twa back in the day and somehow he gave me a friends and family pass so i took this ticket um open-ended and i was flying around europe I ended up in Greece. This is when I really realized. And I'm on a bus going into Santorini, um, and they're playing Nirvana on this bus. And I was just like, wow. Like, this is this is huge. And I had a Seattle hat, and I had long, twisted, knotty things in my hair, like somewhat dreads, but it was just, you know, it was the grungy look, whatever. Um, and And then I realized... You know, and people saw my hat. I think I had a Seattle hat on or something. It said S on it, Mariners maybe. Um, and people would grab it, just come over and talk to me. I felt like a celebrity almost. In, and, and so it was weird to 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 think that because no one wanted a piece of it. No one wanted anything, and then now they want everything. Um, and that's why when you get when you meet a Seattleite, a true Seattleite, and it's a little grumpy that you came here to work for Amazon. This is why. I mean, it doesn't mean we hate you. It's just, it's changed so dramatically that, you know, change is inevitable, right? And we always say growth is optional, right? Um, but the change, change was so huge that, you know, it flipped the city upside down um, um, fairly quickly. Uh, right. The population, I would guess, is over half of the people living in the Seattle area uh, didn't even grow up in Washington no, no, State. No, no, no. one that lives here from that day, not no one, I shouldn't say that, but it's sort of split the old heartbeat of Seattle up because it's forced people out of their lofts and their, 
their apartments and stuff that can't afford to live in Seattle. The affordable Seattle lunch pail Seattle is no longer. Yeah. So, you know, you got folks, friends, you know, that that are living out in South End, North End, East, because um, they can't afford it here. But yeah. Well, that's why Georgetown became yeah. kind of a center, because it, yeah. it, it was uh, very cheap, yeah. because it was the property values were so low. Um, I remember when that started to happen, I w- it, it was like people were talking like, well, we can't live in Belltown anymore because that's too expensive. And we can't live on Capitol Hill because that's too expensive. Can't live in Ballard anymore. That's too expensive. Which is insane to me, Ballard, by the I way. Know. That's the one that always gets me. Me too. I'm like, I only went there to drink at Hattie's Hat. Yeah. And looked at that place like, holy shit, man, this even spooks me a bit. I got to get out of here. There's nothing going on. Yeah. And now it's, it is... It's like it's the Ballard. premier place to live in Seattle. Crazy. Yeah, I lived in Ballard in, you know, in from 90 to 92 or something and uh whenever I people would and I had a friend who lived just up the hill like mm-hmm. from Ballard and I remember when people asked her where she lived, she said she lived in um I think she said Fremont. She was so embarrassed to say Ballard <laughs> that she, you know, cuz she yeah. was on the border uh, the yeah. borderland, you know. And uh Ballard was just like the worst place you could possibly live. Where, like we would go like god, it's so far. Yeah, it's so if far. there was something there when we I lived downtown most of that time and you're like god, Ballard, man. How do yeah. you even get there? Yeah. <laughs> Like, where is it? <laughs> yeah. And essentially, I live in kind of northish Ballard North right Ballard. right now, you know. Um, yeah. It's, it's just seeing that flip, you know, and and how, you know, it just makes me wonder, you know, if grunge never happened, you know, if Nirvana just never happened. Um, it just would makes, Amazon be here? Right. You know, like, would any of this have happened? Well, no. Microsoft would have because it had already, it, it was already kind of right. getting going. Yeah, Microsoft was here. But would we have self-esteem? <laughs> um, Who, me, me, you and I? Or? Yeah, about, about living in this town, you know what I mean? Like, oh, we, yeah, like wearing it as a badge, you mean? Like or a, just, yeah. even just talking about it, you know, yeah. would this podcast be called Psychology in Seattle, you know? Um, There's a lot of psychology in Seattle. We could get into that. So let's right? talk about that. We could get into that. Um, the nuances. I'll start by saying, like, uh, in punk rock, I found my tribe. Like the, you know, to overlap psychology about the belonging, the sense of belonging, how important it is to find um, that connection. It's when I found the music, the lyrics, the anger, the speed, and the expressiveness in fashion and otherwise, I was like, this is how I'm feeling inside and out. Yeah. Um, And it was a great experience to connect with like-minded folks and le- we didn't go talk about our feelings amongst each other but we all knew we had the same stuff yeah and that yeah, was the core I, stuff that people don't know about that particular scene is it yeah. brought a bunch of people together people call them misfits or throwaway but we were like you know we had divorced families and stuff like that that was felt embarrassing back then like yeah ah oh, we don't have our family together we're like what is Do you the- remember the first moment when you heard that style of music and it touched that part of your identity. Yeah, I think. I mean, that moment, my friend Stacy uh, really kind of turned me on to them. She had a bunch of the music, and she turned me on to a lot of the stuff. So I have to credit Stacy. How old were you? Fourteen. What was it? What do you? I remember her playing me, me Necros, which is just an amazing punk band. Like that was my first experience with listening to punk rock. Going, holy crap. Um, I had heard, um, see, I was kind of like 
of age for the the second movement of punk, which was like the hardcore movement. Yeah, there's the early first phase, and then it went went into more hardcore, which kind of the Black Flag. I mean, and then it got angry and violent and stuff, which it wasn't really in the seventies um, at all. Dancing. Is Bad Brains considered seventies? Yeah, I mean, Bad Brains would be considered late seventies, early eighties for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, that's one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah, that's they're a, so good. Um, and then I went to their show. Do you like Circle Jerks? Too? I love the Circle. My friends, I'm friends with Keith Morris and they're, Van, they're, Xander Slosh. They're lighter punk, right? Because because no. if, if I liked it, like no, they're not light. Oh, okay, no. Um, no, but they're popular. They're like the kids with the circle jerks on their peachy and, and black flag in the bars. When those bands came to town, we had other people that weren't in the scene. Because mark my word, when we were going to see, you know, um, the Farts and Soldier and you know, uh, Ten Minute Warning with Duff McKagan was in that band. Silly Killers, Duff played in that band. You know, Green River with Mark Arm and the Mud Honey guys. Did you see them? Stone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Malfunction, which was Andy Wood, who was later, you know, uh, Mother Love Bone singer, R.I.P. Did you know him? Yeah. Not well, but my friends knew him. Um, So the guy at the Ditto told me, Richard Paletti, I think was his name, Mm. he told me that he gave Andy Wood his first uh, drug experience. Oh, fantastic thing to brag about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just saying, <laughs> yeah, um, it, which ended up killing him, yeah. Um, but there was a lot of strong heroin in Seattle, but that's a whole different subject, um, or maybe it's not. Well, but uh, but that's the belonging piece that, yeah, that, that that really was important to me, that ingrained in me, like this is a tribe I belong to, because it was such a preppy uh, um, decade, right? It, it, you had you had your metal guys, yeah, and you had. You had all your preppy people, yeah. you know, and and you had the punks, I guess. New wave. New wave people. Um, but uh, it, it that was the dominant kind of group was the clean cut. Always always has, always like will be. Tom Cruise and, uh-huh. and all yeah. those people. And and for me growing up, um, I, because, I think it's because I'm half Japanese or something. I've, I've never really felt like I was a part of any group. Mm. And so I definitely had like a few toes in the preppy group, yeah. and I, I was captain of the football team, captain of the wrestling team. I was so I was, I was a jock too, but I definitely had you know toes in early goth, what we called bat cavers. Did you call them yeah, bat cavers? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I always ended up dating that type of girl. I bat never, caver. yeah, like a, a goth girl versus a punk girl for yeah. some reason. So I got turned on to all that stuff. By the way, I was a, like thinking I was hardcore and stuff, and when she took me to see like. Um, specimen and skinny puppy and it scared the shit out of me actually i was like <laughs> and of course you can't say that you're a kid you're a punk kid and so i was sitting there going this stuff's garbage but it, really i was uh, blown away by it and also horrified <laughs> like what, what what were they doing just the darkness and the, the like sound the blood and, the... and it wasn't even blood it was just like there was no stage lights they were backlit and it was like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Skinny Puppy or Ogre on stage, but it was no. like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and this guy, you know, and you're 14 years old. Yeah. It's like, you know, if a parent had a choice, they probably wouldn't say, yes, please be exposed to Skinny Puppy. Yeah. But um, Alien Sex Fiend was another one. Uh, um, still amazing 
stuff today. I mean, it's not. For, for me, it was hearing, could you be the one by Husker Du? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't have friends like you did that had, you know, these kinds of records. And um, I had I had friends that had new wave stuff like mm-hmm. Talking Heads and Depeche Mode. And so, and The Cure, I got that kind of through friends. But, um, you know, MTV had... Uh, 120 minutes, yeah, which course. is late, you know, Sunday night, and they and I would watch it because that was usually my favorite music. They had, they for example had the Posies, which was a local band. I know the, you know those guys too. I got a good Posies story. Okay, good, kind um, of good. And I, uh, they they played. Could you be the one by Husker Du? And I, it, it's one of their very first um, kind of. It's Warehouse. It was an album that I think they thought maybe we could actually kind of sell this to the general public you know it was sort of 86 87 or something Mm -hmm. and when i heard could you be the one i was just like it just spoke to me in a way that uh, no other song had before i mean music had spoke to me before in other ways um for sure it wasn't like i hadn't been moved before but this was something i had never it was a a a part of my soul that i'd never felt sort of resonating in the world you know and i uh got my dad to when I was at Bellevue Square to buy me that double, you know, vinyl record. And I listened to that on, and I, you know, recorded it on to a cassette tape and on my Walkman, I'd walk through high school. And I remember just listening to Husker Du and just loathing the stupidness of high school, you know, that, that intimate experience of just like, what are we doing here? You know, we're just so, the world is so stupid, you know, and people listen to this podcast and know I, I frequently will talk about that. So, I, you know, I obviously have had that narcissism since I was young. But um, but anyway, that was my moment was was could you be yeah. the one? And then when I heard Nirvana, um, I was like, oh, my God, they must have listened to Husker Du because this is like the next, <laughs> well, so the, the next the, chapter. Yeah, I mean, the pop sensibility is, you right. know, and melodic, hard, yeah. angry, simple. Uh, not angry raw. enough in some ways for yeah. a lot of us. And that's the thing that, that was great about growing uh, older a little bit is revisiting some of the stuff like and falling in love with Husker Du when I wasn't. When I, I mean, all, truthfully, I was like, like they weren't for me hard enough. They right. weren't heavy enough. And I kind of, I needed that, love that. Even those early albums, Candy huh? Apple Grey, those, those eh, still, wasn't. still wasn't hard Not enough. when you listen to, you know, when you're yeah. listening to... You know, Necros and and totally. you know DOA and stuff like that. It yeah. just doesn't um, doesn't compare, but but it does. I mean, there's, there's the you know the whole replacements, Bob Mould, Husker Du thing, right? That carries that particular style, yeah. Which ended up being more so the 120 minutes kind of stuff, right? You know, so yeah. So what's your Posey story? Because it was one of my favorite bands in the late 80s. Yeah. um, So they, um, God, I can't remember what year this was, but um, but Bumbershoot, they were they were going to opening for Soundgarden. They were going to open for Psychedelic First. Okay. And the Psychedelic First canceled, and and they added Soundgarden. I, I was there. So was I. So and we felt I so bad story for too, the posies. But I want to hear your st- yeah, because the audience. I was, hated the posies. Right. So were you in the were you in the pit? Yeah, throwing beer cans at the posies. Oh my! I'm God. sorry. I'm sorry, Ken Stringfellow and and folks today John and John Hour that I I hope I didn't hit you with a can of beer. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, okay. So let me tell my version, and you yeah. tell yours. Okay. So 
I love the posies and I know Soundgarden because I, I had friends who liked, you know, that sort of music. Um, even to this day, louder than bombs. Love. Love. Um, is not louder one than of, bombs is a Gary. It's a, it's pump. Jimmy Hendrix. Oh, yeah. um, is not my favorite era of Soundgarden. I like the super unknown that, you know, when they started getting more kind of, I guess you could say poppy in a sense or more melodic or something. Um, but anyway, uh, so, but, you know, they were fine. And so I go to see the Posies, and like you said, they were supposed to open for Psychedelic First, which would have been perfect. It fits. Posies, Psychedelic. bad for the Posies. Posies, Psychedelic First, that's a, that's a very, you know, synchronistic ticket, yep. shall we say. So Psychedelics for Psychedelic Furs, and this is in, this is Bumbershoot, which is the big music festival in Seattle. It still exists. Back when it was free, yeah, and back, there was great music to right. see. Back when it, like, anyone could basically go, and, and it was packed with all these. Anyway, so, so me and my friends go, and this is, I believe, the summer of, of 90, um, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and so uh, we're watching the Posies, and the, the, the people in the front who all kind of rush the stage, the sort of, sort of rougher people who can push people <laughs> away are right up against the stage. And the nicer people, the Posies fans are, are behind <laughs> the nicer them people. like me. And the, the rough guys in the, in the front are screaming at the Posies whenever they would stop playing. They'd get off the stage. Fuck you. Throwing shit at yeah, them. Yeah, beer cans. And at some point, I can't believe I wasted a beer. Throwing <laughs> and at some point, John Hour is just like, because he's from Seattle, and I and I, I was like, what are they going to do? And I remember John Hour was just like, hey, fuck you. This is our ticket. It's our show, and we have fans here. And you guys in the front, fuck off. We're playing. We're That's playing. when they really got it. They got respect out of that, though. Oh, I remember okay. like that. Like, I was like, you know, like they stood up to yeah the challenge of it. Um, even though that was their that was their stage. You're right. It wasn't. It wasn't. We weren't. I wouldn't have been there, and nor would other the uh, what the mean people <laughs> up front <laughs> wouldn't have been there if the first wouldn't have canceled. But. Um, they right. did, and to to date, um, is one of the best Soundgarden shows I've ever seen. Right, and I saw the, a ton of them. Right, right, right. That was incredible. Okay, that's cool. So incredible. So, uh, so then I, um, Posey stop, and then Soundgarden starts to play, and I'm like, okay, well, we're here, we're in the you know Key Arena or the Coliseum, whatever it was called back then, and I'm like, um, okay, well, you know, and I see when the Soundgarden starts playing. You know, you mean guys are are just going crazy. And again, this is before we called it a mosh pit. You yeah. know, no one called it. We just slam dance. We just called it slam dancing back yeah. in the day. Yeah. And so I'm like, I've never seen this before. You know, this is my first, you know, inaugural vision of your world that you had been in for five years. Yeah, right, you know? right. That that Metropolis Gorilla Gardens world clashing with. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, so, so I, uh, with my friends, uh, I'm like, let's go in there. And, and, and so, um, we go in and I've to this day, you know, I thought after this experience, I thought, okay, well, I guess that's what, you know, slam dancing pits are like. I've never seen another slam dance pit, anything close to this, you know, when moshing became popular later no, on. It just became violent then. Well, or when it became like a show, or people wanted to yeah. show off. Like this was like, this was like um, a very physical, not violent, violent, but scary, but intimate. It was very. Yeah. You're. It was. 
there was a lot of body contact. Yeah, it's just and and no one wanted to fight each other though. Well, there probably was, but maybe a little bit. But but, but it was packed in there, and not to get graphic, but yeah. I was so I was so being pushed around and battered around and and bludgeoned on all parts of my body that my you know sensitive areas were getting. <laughs> Were, were more are more sensitive to that kind of pummeling, and yeah. so I, I had this uh, stocking cap, and I put it down the front of my pants <laughs> as like a a buffer, a makeshift jock strap, I if you it. will, and uh, and I remember instantly entering the uh, the crowd and. I, me and my three friends, the two of my friends, we were we were holding on to each other as we were going in because we didn't want to lose each other. And within half a second, we just got ripped apart, and I never saw them again until the end of the show. <laughs> ever in life, right? Like ever? No, I'm kidding. yeah, they, they're still that was, there. That it, was still the end. That was the end of them. Um, but the moment I remember about Soundgarden, and I managed to push my way up to the front because you know I'm six one, I can make my way up to the front, and. Uh, all of a sudden, everyone in the audience is singing some kind of chant. And I'm like, wait, what's happening right now? Like, everyone knows this song, um, and they're all singing along, you know. Uh, with, big Dumb uh, Sex, with, maybe? It was Fuck, 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 I Fuck You. Big Dumb Sex. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, you know, Fuck, 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 Fuck You. I fuck know what you. to do. Yeah. I wanna bleep, 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 bleep <laughs> you. And so I was like... Man, I these people they're not just here like they're not just here to they actually love this band. They know all the words, you know. I remember just We've being, seen them for 6 years yeah. already at that point. I mean, yeah. they were I mean, they were playing the Gorilla Gardens they and were, and Ditto for and example. Ditto, yeah. yeah, well in, you know, way before any of that. And that's what the pride for for us is like when this got bigger, when I say us, the core like folks that were at these little small venues yeah. before these big shows. We hated the big shows. I did. And I know everyone else did because, you know, other people would come in and think that they liked them or would put them on their peaches or something like that. And so we're really pressed. We really held on to like, this is ours. Yeah. And when, it, you know, um, and it changed so quickly that we didn't even have a chance to stop it. Yeah. In terms of everyone was everywhere and seeing everything. And it, it, so you and I, yeah. you, you might have. You, might have, pum- you big... might have pummeled my sensitive area during that nah, time. I mean, still, I'm not that big. I was <laughs> angry, though. And so I had, I, I, uh, I did get into some, some, some scraps. But, but, but what I loved about the, the pit in the old days and the slam dancing was, yeah, you'd get hit. I got concussions, um, black eyes, you know, bruises, probably a broken rib. And it was part of it. You know, and so it for wasn't people violent, that, and they would you get picked up. It was, I mean, you're you get hurt. picked up. Yeah, for it people who happened. don't understand, why do you think psychologically you wanted to do that? It was a part. It was like a badge of honor. It was like you get in the pit, and even if you get if you get hurt, it's almost like even more of a badge. I remember getting a concussion at DRI at the uh, um, like a stage dive. Like I went off the stage, and the red the seas parted, and looked down, and all I saw was concrete, and it was con- yeah, concrete doesn't yeah. have any give. Yeah, and I, next thing I know, I was kind of outside, sitting across the street from the uh, from the Gorilla Gardens, which is now Carpet King, across from the transit station, um, and like what happened? What happened? And I was you know throwing up. 
and shook it off. Probably had a drink of Old English and went back in. Yeah. Um, and it felt it was that pride of like when I came back in, I had a little blood and. You know, it was like the bigger kids, too, were like, yeah, look at this guy. He's tough. Inside, I was like, holy shit. But, um, but that belonging and the, and the big protectors. And Chris Cornell was like that amongst all of... He was always big. He had the body of Adonis. He said he, you know, never worked out. Um, people that know him even better say, yes, he did. Um, but he was always, you know, super tall, had the hair, had everything, you know, and... And he was there, and we knew when Chris was around, it was like people, he was just bigger. He just had a silent sort of, like, you knew you knew you were okay when you were around him. But, but yeah, in the pit, it got, it got crazy violent. But at the Metropolis, or at the Gorilla Gardens, which was interesting, is there were two sides. And there was one side that was the punk side, and the other side that was more considered the metal side. So you'd have hair metal bands playing, and one hallway separating that from punk and i always say when the hallway overlapped it was like slayer when slayer came to town the punks were like wow okay i can get behind this but the hair guys are here shit we can't totally love this um but it was violent fast and it was just like um and then the metal guys got into the pit and that's when it got violent like actual elbows they target you try to knock you on your ass not pick you up step on you and it just became too dangerous in there. Yeah, I never understood that style. It's a style of dance. I'm sure in you know a hundred years there'll be some anthropology class where where they'll talk about the the dance of you know the punks in the '80s or obsective punks, and you're saying metal, where they they do their elbows. Yeah, your elbows are up to kind of protect your head. So you duck your elbows. Yeah, but you, but, you duck but, your head. but some guys when they slam, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, they, that. they swing their elbows. And any of the big kids would come along and say, "That ain't cool. Don't swing." Yeah, you always you you just protect your elbows like up and down. Right. You like know, the, like and the you're not guard. throwing things like a like bummer elbows. shoot. That one time, I don't remember anyone doing that. I just remember it was a lot of body contact. You know what I mean? And actually, so just a side note, Antioch. Um, when I teach systems perspectives, which you've taken on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I talk about occasionally about how that mass of people was a system. Yeah, absolutely. In that um, everyone had sort of a goal to see the show, to be packed in there, and every once in a while, like uh, like someone would kind of fall down like you know the butterfly wings in china and suddenly like uh, there's a tornado in kansas yeah so, someone kind of falls and then the crowd there would be this wave of movement through the crowd and then on the other side people like 10 or 20 people would fall on their ass yeah. because it would just propagate through the wave of people and there so the the people were a system and and everyone had to play their part you know yeah. what i mean and Although we influenced what happened to the system, we definitely did not have control over the system. Right, no yeah. one had control over the system. No. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that, that's when it changed. The, the no control piece was like, you can't stop these big metalhead kids coming in, swinging and, and, and putting, wearing bracelets with spikes on them, yeah. which we used to have. There was a law, I think, that you could only have a one-inch spike back in the day, which is interesting. So if you had an inch and a half, which I did on my shoulders, you were trying to think you are a badass because <laughs> you were going a half-inch past what was legal. I don't know if there was a law, but I, I, there was something about the spikes. But they would throw them at you, like try to hit you in the face with them. Yeah. There was a guy out there that used to put nails through his coat. God, I went... 
And this dude scared the shit out of me. He had nails driven through his coat, which the sharp end, of course, exposed to the, the outer. And he had him on his shoulders. And he had the perfect, like, he, he was totally quaffed out of, like, GBH style. Spiked hair. Looked like he was, you know, ready to rock in, in London. And so smoked during it. And no one got near this guy in the pit. No one did. So is this a expression of some inner emotional? Yeah. I mean, as you start to uh-huh. head into treating people, yeah. uh, you know, what's the, what's the cause of that? Yeah. yeah, I think belonging is the core of it. I wrote a, like I think I said already, I wrote a paper early in graduate school called Punk Saved My Life and brought in like the belonging piece and the emotional sort of, I guess, uh, lack of maturity at the time that we had. Um, but I look at the punk, the pit as being the part of the expressive therapy. Yeah. Uh, largely, it was really expressive therapy. Letting it out. Yeah. Letting it out. People. My God, get the best night's sleep after a show. You know, I didn't think about what life was going to be like, hating this, that, and the other. It was like, I remember just going to sleep. Yeah. You know, after a show. I and, mean, you know, you wonder, like that violent, it didn't, it, it didn't. People ask this question, which is interesting. Do you think you have PTSD from that? Which, post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder, for obviously you know, but for listeners, they probably know if they're listening to this podcast. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I, I, I looked at it as cathartic. Like, really, when I listen to music, it calmed me down. It's like Adderall, right? Adderall is a stimulant, but it's used to calm down those with, like, hyperactive disorders. Yeah, people so often... It's interesting how that works. Right. Chemically. People often will say... Uh, and I haven't seen any research, but it, it is anecdotally uh, true for me, is that the the more angry and more violent the music is, the more calm the person is. You know, you'll find, uh, you know, super angry metal guys and I guess punk guys. Um, when you meet, you're scared of them because you're yeah. like, oh, they must yeah. be. But when you meet them, they're like the nicest, <laughs> yeah. the most giving, quiet, you know, good listeners. And you have to wonder... Is that because they have this outlet? Yeah. And was it, yeah. And I look back now based on what I know today, and like you're talking about practicing um, therapy, um, is, you know, is it ADHD? Did I have, you know, what, what else was going on with me Yeah. Um, w- at that time that made that feel so good? Yeah. You know, and it really did. Not being violent with others, not a- at all saying that, um, because there were very few fights when it was just core shows at the gardens. Well, and well, the point you brought up was that it was belonging. You know, you could have listened in your bedroom and slam danced into the wall or mm-hmm. something, but that wasn't what. So you could have had the same physical experience without the people. Yeah, but the the communion and the oh. togetherness and the it's almost you know it, it, there's 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 hints or echoes of going into war or, mm. or playing a sport with people. Yeah, right. you're, you're going into this, this dark pit and uh, together yeah. uh, and you come out of it uh, more bonded, uh, closer, and um, you faced your fears together and, yeah. and, and now you're okay. You know? Now we're okay for that, that time. It's like those, Lanigan's one of those, I think, that said to me that one of his favorite parts of any day is hour on stage. It's just like, it's just, you didn't think about anything else, but what's going on in front of him. And then it's the 23 hours or the, the 22 and a half that you have to deal with to get back to that stage again. Yeah. And 
largely that was us too back in the day. It was like I had to go through a week of friggin' school and wait till that next punk show. Did and you see it was the, just horrifying. <laughs> did you see the Lanigan episode with um, Anthony Bourdain? Yeah. Yeah. They did that at the Royal Room. Yeah. Which used to be owned, or uh, the owners of the Royal Room, Steve and Tia, owned the OK Hotel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Just a little history. The part of that episode, I love that episode because I got to, I, I haven't really, you know, got to see that side of Mark, and especially, you know, recent um, days. Um, but the thing that bugged me about that episode was that, um, was that Anthony Bourdain kept uh, bringing up this notion, and I'm guessing his producers will ask him about serial killers in the Pacific Northwest. Do you remember that? I part? don't remember. I don't know if I ever saw the episode. But I knew oh. he did it. So in the episode, Anthony Bourdain, this you know traveling uh, food sure. and cook guy, um, he comes to the Northwest, and um, and he, I don't know how he chose Mar- Mark Lanigan. I, I do. Oh. I can just tell you. He said, "I want to." I just had this craving to listen to Mark Lanigan and smoke pot. Oh, okay. And eat good food. Okay, so that's he's what f- he said. What he that's what he said. He's a fan of, of He's him. a fan, definitely. Okay, so so he comes to Seattle and, and Mark Lanigan's showing him around Seattle kind of, I guess, and they're they're talking about the old days and, and about, you know, things that they want to talk about, I guess. And uh the thing that bugged me was Bourdain just kept bringing up this thing. It's like, you know, Mark, you know, why do you think it is that people in the Pacific Northwest, why are there so many of them serial killers? So and to me, I've heard, uh, you know, of all the associations I have about Seattle, the fact that we have, on average, more serial killers is not really a top 100 things, you know. But for whatever reason, there's a certain section of the Internet that, you know, they yeah. think, oh, it always rains in Seattle and they have a lot of serial killers. Um, and it just kind of bugged me. I was just like, yeah. I was just and Mark Lanigan. I could tell was like you and me. I was just like, um, how do you I, answer that? I, is that a thing? I didn't even know that it was a thing. You know, we used to say, we used to say that you, you either work at Boeing, join a band or you're a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. That's our jobs. That's our history. That's all we have in front of us. You got to pick one. Yeah. So, um, I, anyway, I just, I was just wondering if, if you remember that, but, um, so what, why, what, so the drug of choice in the eighties and nineties for a lot of these guys was heroin, correct? It began to be. And cocaine was big. Okay. But then it turned into heroin pretty so, quickly. Andrew Wood. In the eighties, yeah. Uh Chris Cornell, obviously Kurt Cobain. Lane Staley. Lane Staley. Um uh, all of them. Uh, yeah. Chris Cornell, Andy Wood, Lane Staley all died from accidental or no, from uh Chris Cornell he well, might have killed himself, correct? Um yeah, I would like to offer another another side of that even, um, that I don't think he killed himself, but Okay. Well, tell us. I just don't think he did. There's, you know... Um, you think it was accidental? I think, yeah, I think something happened. I think accidentally, and then it was staged. Um, um, there's a lot of... Um, and I, got, I can't cite my sources, but there's a lot of underlying stuff that was happening. And um, Who would be interested in covering it up? That's the interesting thing. That's what my friend says. So if that's true, then why would you want to cover it up? Wouldn't a murder be more... Um, you know, if you think your husband was murdered, Vicky Cornell. Um, so you think it's her? Yeah. Okay. Um, don't know why. Um, don't know. Um, I know that um, those that knew Chris and were closer to Chris and um, did not like her and do not like her. What's but, your take on the Kurt Courtney thing? Well, let me, fi- let, let's do the, we'll do the, finish the, yeah, this, that, that's a whole other thing. Um, she, so, you know, he had, he had, 
blunt force trauma to his head, Chris did. Really? And broken ribs. The autopsy showed it. It's public information. And not at all. It was, ever, it was never investigated of how that happened. Is it po- You know, I look at it like we would in psychology, right? It's like theory. Is it possible that he was super high, fell down, hit his head, all that stuff, decided then to get a rubber tubing and hang himself on a door hook that was too short for him? I guess it's possible. But why why don't we have any discussion about where the head injuries came from? Yeah. Maybe they did come from that, but we but it wasn't told or wasn't said. To me it's worth investigating. Yeah. And I know others that are close to Chris feel similarly. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. So that's interesting. Anyway. What do you think about Kurt and Corey? I've created a conspiracy theory now in Seattle. What a what a shock. Um what do I think about that? Um I mean it is what you saw. It was that relationship. I mean, I met them several times and worked with Courtney on a photo shoot and traded clothes with Kurt Cobain, actually. I still have a leather jacket of Kurt's. Um, I did a shirt back in the 90, 92 called Pearl Jovi, making fun of Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. And they actually got a kick out of it. Um, and he was in the club where I used to, I used to book shows and bartend at the Color Box in Pioneer Square. And... I had these shirts there, and him and Courtney and Nova Selleck came in, and it was the slowest night. It was a perfect night to just hang out, because I don't even know why we were open. For some reason, it seemed like there was only five people in there. And um, those that are not familiar with the color box had these like art, big archways with a step up and tables and booths that were kind of secluded. Kurt, and, Kurt goes and sits in one of those by himself, and Courtney and Chris came to the bar. And all I wanted to do is go talk to Kurt and almost just say, hey, you know, I don't want anything from you. Um, but I feel like a kindred spirit with him in some ways. What he, what he said, how he acted, what he thought. Um, but so I went back to the bar and I just decided in a whim, like, I got these shirts. I'm going to go serve those guys beer. Courtney served herself. Of course she did. Reached over the bar. I just shook my head like, you can't stop her. You, you really just can't. She's like a tornado back then. So just an asterisk yeah, on sure. that was back before uber you know you had cabs and one of the things i would always ask or not always but frequently i would ask cab drivers who's you know what's the most crazy story uh, you have as a cab driver without a you know doubt all of them would say oh well i had kurt i had courtney one time if they were in her cab that was the story they were like yeah and she was really high and she was going crazy and i mean feral yeah you know um for a lot of reasons, you know, I'm not judging her for it. That's just the way she was. Um, yeah, so I'm sitting, so I go walk over to Kurt and I said, Look, I think you might like this. I just want to give this to you. And I held up one of the Pearl Jovi shirts and he looked at it, read it, smiled, and he said, Cool, that's cool. And I kind of tossed it on his lap and I was like, No, I want you to have it. And, uh, you know, I, I go, I don't want to bother you. I'm going to go back to the bar. And he goes, Wait, wait. Like he didn't feel right about it. And he stood up and he took off his leather jacket and gave it to me and said, now we're cool. Wow. And I said, all right, cool. I didn't say, you know, I go, you don't have, you know, and he goes, no, no, we're cool now. And shook hands and I went back to the bar and Courtney saw that I had his jacket. And of course she's like, that's Kurt's jacket. You know, I basically said, you're going to have to rip it out of my dead hands, you know, because we traded. And then Chris was like, what did you trade? And I held up a shirt. I want one. Nova Selleck jumps up, takes off his Mervin's pocket t-shirt, which he gave me. Is this good enough for a trade? And I'm like, sure. And I took his Mervin's t-shirt. 
Um, so for context, this is after yeah. they're mammothly famous. Yeah. And you just know, happening. Yeah. Just like, boom, the explosion went off. Yeah. And, the, and all of the debris was starting to settle and like, yeah, yeah they were Nirvana then. Um, yeah. And that was the end of that night. But um, so what do you think? Do you think but, he, he killed himself? That one, um, yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to think that he didn't. I mean, I'm open to that. Um, my friend brings up a good point all the time. It's like, you know, as humans, we need to explain things, and things that we can't explain bother us. So we'll end up sort of psychologically picking a side, like, he did it, he didn't do it type thing, because that gray area is too, that ambiguity is too difficult. Yeah. Um I uh, I think it with his history and everything that was going on with him, I think it's possible, sure, yeah. that he did it. I mean, he was not happy, yeah. and he had some significant pains in his stomach that he was dealing with. Chronic. Um, he had, yeah, chronic pains that were suffering in Europe prior. Yeah. So, and yeah, there, I mean... There's also evidence from, you know, me watching what's on the internet and that documentary in which it's a lot of recordings of him. I can't remember the name of that documentary about a boy. I think it's called anyway. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it is about a boy. Yeah. And, he, um, he was, um, suffering a lot, obviously from, from he even wrote song, you know, penny royalty, for example, about his, his stomach and how, how horrible it was all the time. And he was suffering from a lot of ups and downs of drug addiction, uh, to heroin and then him and and he was very much in love with Courtney. He had he had a lot of abandonment uh, and and abuse uh, history growing up in his life. Not horrific, but not great. And um, I believe that there's or there's evidence. I don't believe there's evidence that um, he had you know some pretty major attachment issues. And uh, Courtney really satisfied him in this way because she because mm-hmm. she was so all encompassing mm-hmm. that. There was no room for him to um, feel uh, alone because she was just so present, you know, and so, and she has her own attachment issues as well. And so I think you know, for Kurt, he was just like, oh, I love this woman because um, she just takes up so much space and she wants to be with me. And um, and I and I feel kind of well, I'm not alone. You said it. I think I agree. Yeah. Like you're not alone with your thoughts, right? And, and then he, he never was. They start to ha- have some issues, you know. So there was talk about separation, divorce, from what I understand. And I think that Kurt Cobain had a uh, extreme negative reaction to that, given his attachment issues, as anyone would, mm-hmm. and given his um, trust of other people to reach out to them and. And um, which you know, there was none, right? And the isolation of being a famous person, I think, to some extent, and um, really maybe being overly dependent on Courtney and not having other people that he could really talk to. Uh, to me, I, I think there's a possibility that he just had mm-hmm. an absolute despair uh, moment and was like, um, "My stomach is awful. I've been depressed for 15 years, maybe my whole life. I've had suicidal thoughts before." Um, I, I believe me and Courtney are on the way out, you know, cause this isn't going to work. Um, you know, what's the point? Uh, you know, I've done everything I wanted to do. Um, and you know, it's time to go. Um, I, I think that there's a, there's a pretty good, um, case for there's that. A lot that. of support for that. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. 
I agree. And I, I kind of leave that one alone to exactly what you said. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that supported that. Um, whereas with Chris, you know, because um, he was Chris sober. Had depression. Wasn't he sober at the time? I thought I thought there were reports that he had been in rehab and had gotten Chris sober. Had gone, Chris was sober, not sober. It was back and on, on and off. Yeah. And it was one of those things you didn't really hear about a lot. That was the interesting thing about Chris is is we knew about Lane's addiction. We knew about we knew about um, Kurt. We knew we knew about Andy even at the time. But Chris was like. I don't know if people were in denial or just didn't want to talk about it, but he was significantly, you know, using substances for a long period of time. Was it because his life wasn't so much of a train wreck like the other guys? I think, I mean, like a lot of the stuff we deal with in therapy, too, is a lot of the origin. Attachment, right? Bonding, lack of bonding, abuse as a kid, um, whether it's verbal, physical, or otherwise, right? Um, And all of those guys experienced that. To some degree. So what is the, uh, for people that don't understand, why would heroin help with that? Because heroin makes you feel nothing but pleasure. And the pleasure is numbness. So anybody, anytime somebody says they want to check out or, you know, take the edge off, um, you know, and have a drink to do that, um, Heroin is the extreme in terms of taking the edge off because it, it just it files it down to a nub <laughs> and you're essentially uh, just in a catatonic state, um, which, you know, when you don't want when you don't when you have thoughts and feelings and, and situations you don't want to think about or deal with doesn't make them go away, but it makes them go away temporarily inside of you. because You're in this it's almost like being in the womb, if you can imagine being in a womb is just like you feel protected and safe and warm. And what is it about being until you don't? Yeah, <laughs> and then your brain overcompensates yeah. by downregulating all those receptors. Exactly, and you feel ten times worse than you've ever felt. Exactly, and then you say, "Oh shit, I need more. I need more." And that's there you go. There's the cycle. And heroin is not regulated, so you're like, well, I'm taking a guess as to how much I'm putting in my vein right now. I don't think this is too much, but, you know, who knows? Or you haven't used in a month because you went to rehab and yeah. you used the same amount you yeah. used before. Yeah, right. Like Andy Wood much. was 90 days, I think, clean, and then he came out. I think his was laced, though. I think it was found that it was laced. Hmm. Um, but he used a similar size dose. A lot of people thought it was that, you know, it was basically it's a shock to the system. So... Why, what is it about being a musician, a famous musician, that would make it even worse, make it, make the suffering even greater so that one would need heroin even more? I mean, if you're insecure with $5 and, you know, five people at your show, you're probably going to have insecurity with 5,000 people at your show and five hundred thousand dollars in your bank account doesn't change your... doesn't change who you are yeah um fame only exacerbates some of that stuff in a way i think right because i think for some people you know while you're on the way up it it is um temporarily uh validating and plateauing but particularly if you start to go down, yeah, you know your shows are smaller, your sales are oh lesser. yeah, and you, and you start playing at you know Indian casinos, right? And although 
for my band, if I played it in any casino, <laughs> I'd be elated. You know what I mean? Right. But for these people, it's it's definitely a yeah. downgrade, and it can make your your suffering and insecurity. Yeah. Um, you know, I experienced that when I left Los Angeles and moved back to Seattle. Um, after growing up here, I left and went in 95, went to L.A. and worked at a major record company. Worked with Rick Rubin, who founded Def Jam Music. Um, you know, Demogod, what'd you do for him? Producer. I was an A&R uh, executive for him. Oh, wow. Which, for those that don't know, is the fancy terminology for talent scout. Yeah. But we had talent scouts. So, we, you know, if anybody called me a scout, I was quick to correct that. But um, no, no, no. I was a scout. Now I'm an executive. But sa- essentially the same thing. Um, and when I... I didn't need to be Brendan at that time. I had, I was Rick Rubin's guy. And so my card, my calling, my got me into anything and everything. And it was, you know, I was associated and it felt really good. Right. I felt, you know, the ego felt really strong. Um, and all the insecurities that I had felt about X, Y, and Z weren't there. Cut to, Taking, um, moving back to Seattle and going back to graduate school, uh, or going to graduate school, um, and leaving around, leaving behind the stage, if you will, which was my career, um, the career that also had the built-in friends, the built-in entertainment, everything was that. It was all in. You, you got, you had everything. There was never a shortage of anything to do because it always, there was always something going on. Um, and then having all of that removed and moving back to Seattle in the winter, um, going to grad school, which is in a vacuum, really couldn't really connect with too many people outside of that during that starting to work in mental health and, and realizing, God, if I feel this way, like, like when the party's over, turn off the lights or turn out the lights as Morrison said, I think, right. Um, the lights were off and it was like, shit, this feels bad. I, and I thought about musicians and artists that once you get a taste of that fame and if you don't have your, your emotional cultivated, your emotional maturity and dealt with some of that well, and stuff, your attachment security and your attachment security, which no one knows about, right? Unless they come see us. Yeah. No one knows about that. They just feel like that suffering or that particular pattern of behavior in life is just the cards that they're dealt with. Yeah. Um, but, you know, until until that, I never really had a taste of it. And I'm like, if I'm feeling it from this, I wasn't a star. I was known I was known in, in this circle. But, but correct I had, me if I'm wrong, yeah. a lot of musicians would be kissing your ass. Every one of them. Right. So that is a certain fame vibe. True. Yeah. I mean, it did have... All of those things. It just was a magnet you would meet who oh, yeah. knew who you Most. were would just be like, you know, please. Especially if we, knowing I was Rick's guy. Yeah. Because working with Rick, I mean, everyone seemed to think that that was the best I mean, thing you, since sliced bread. You, you know, you're King Midas. You know, you, yeah. could, you could just decide, like, you're the next, you know, thing. Yeah. Or Rick would decide, to, essentially. But you're the, right. but I'm you're the, the bouncer into the green the room. I got the guest list. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is probably the most important job at a club, if you ask anybody, is the bouncer. You got to know right. the bouncer. Right. And the bartender. But, but yeah, I mean... And it sucked for a long time. And I didn't know what I was feeling. I, and then I was like, how do I, like, am I, how do I be social? I didn't realize that these things existed or didn't exist in my life, rather. 
so I can't imagine what it's like to to be a musician, um, a sex symbol or whatnot. You start receding hairline, age, life takes over, and all of a sudden you're paying, playing country fairs, and and I see that and it depresses me. And so it, I wonder how the the folks feel about it. Like, is this? But I think it's also an acceptance of periods in career. Not everyone can have U2's career. Not everyone has the Rolling Stones career, right? Right. Um, none of them. No, you know. Yeah. Uh, Virtually so, no one has the Screaming Trees career. Oh, yeah, that's true. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, essentially, statistically. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's the other thing. Once, once you do sign a record deal with us, you know, which is a 1%, then one percent of those signed make it right. So I, maybe not that low, but so you you know all about this. So, yeah. um, uh, but uh, and maybe you can fill in the gaps here. But so I'm nineteen, twenty one, twenty three in a band, um, trying to become the next Smashing Pumpkins, you know, or something, because that was more my kind of vibe back mm-hmm. then. And incidentally, I'm forming a Smashing Pumpkins tribute band. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, and so uh, I um, was, that's what I wanted. I, I was still in college at UW. I was still, you know, doing what I wanted to do in terms of um, business and making a career. So I wasn't delusional about it. But I, I thought, you know, maybe, because I just, especially back then, I would see, you know, uh, Kurt Cobain wears a Melvin shirt and they got a made, you know, and then boom, they, they're selling millions of records. And I was just like, you know, I could Melvin's. Yeah. They didn't quite sell a million, but they did well, get but, signed you know to a I major. Mean. I know what you mean. I mean, but they were getting, they were on MTV. Yeah. You know? A lot of bands got signed that no one would ever touch. It was, right. they, they, they fished the pond dry up here. Meat puppets. You know, it was like, I mean, obviously Meat puppets had a, an audience, but not that big of an audience. And it just seemed like every band was suddenly, you know, gigantic <laughs> from Seattle. And so I thought, you know, there's a chance. And we had agents that were interested in us and people were interested in this one guy. Um, was interested in us. He was actually a drug dealer <laughs> and had a lot of extra money <laughs> and wanted to get into the scene kind For of some, thing. that's a perfect person to be interested in their band. Right. It, well, he was For the some. nicest guy. He was the nicest guy and would just hand money to us and... And so he paid for us to record in Ballard at, um, like, the premier um, uh, studio. And I think it might even still be there. I'm not quite sure. And um, it was this nice studio. And so so there's two stories that, that I wanted to tell uh, briefly. One is is that um, – so at UW, I, took, I got a business degree because I thought, well um, – I might not be famous as a musician. If that doesn't work out, well, I'll be, uh, I'll own my own recording studio because I like, I'm, I, I like to produce, you know, um, like right now I'm, you know, doing a small version of that, you know, with the podcast. And so I talked to the owner of this, of this recording studio and I was just like, Oh my God, you have my life. You have this beautiful studio, you know, da da da. And he's like, um, y- you're going to hate it. I hate it. <laughs> you don't want it. Yeah. Right? He's like, it's like, I, you think it's getting into the music business? It's not. It's getting into the business of desperately, uh, <laughs> you know, lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, hoping that um, you book enough days in the recording studio so that you can pay your bills. Um, it has. It has. You. You never get a chance to have fun in your studio because if you're having fun in your studio, that means another band is not paying for the time in <laughs> your studio, and yeah. and it's this big headache. And most of the ninety nine percent of the bands that you record, you hate. It's just like some shitty country band yeah, when you or have some, to do it for the money and, yeah, yeah or some 
uh, you know, some Microsoft exec who wants to be in a their blues son band. Is, uh, they want their son to make a record who right. doesn't have any talent. They yeah, pay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, some engineer had to engineer, you know, that one girl's song, that Friday song, God Get Down on Friday. You know <laughs> what I mean? And he's just like, this is what I got into, you know. Um, so that's when I discovered, oh, I guess I don't want to do this. The second conversation happened around the same time. Um, there was this band, a, cu- a friend of mine, his cousin was in this big um, band, Reef, from England. I don't know if you remember that hit song. Anyway, they came to Seattle. They played the sit and spin. I don't know if you remember that. I place. remember that. Laundry. Yeah, and so uh, and they had a club in the back, and yeah. and I uh, because I knew the guy, I talked to him. I was like, "You have my life. Like you're touring the world. You have a hit song. You know, you're like top ten hit on the you know Billboard charts. You're you have an MTV music video. Like this is amazing." And he's like, "Let me tell you what my life is like." In his British accent, he's like, um, "So this is my first hit. So." my contract with my label is not very good. So I'm getting almost nothing from the sale of that. So he has to recoup all the costs going in. Right. And I get um, 30, I think he said something like $32,000 a year. And I'm traveling every day. Yeah. And it is, and I never know where I'm going to wake up. 8 a.m., 7 a.m. wake ups to go to a radio interview. Yeah. And I'm eating at like McDonald's and, it's just, it's a drag. And I, and I was earning more money than him at the time. And I'm like, what? And then, and then he says, if I don't have another hit record after this, that's it. That's it. That's it for me. Um, I, I will net no money from this experience. And I was like, oh my God, there's no chance I'm going to be as big as that guy. Like I want to be, you know, I want to be like as big as maybe Hammerbox. That was my, that <laughs> yeah. was always my kind of thing. Right. You know, it's like, well, if I can be as big as Hammerbox, then that'll be great. Uh, and, and I, it, it painted the whole picture. I was like, so if that's your financial and your life, Hammerbox must be, they must all have day jobs. Do you know what I mean? And so that's when everything shifted for me anyway. I'm just like, mm. this is, this is a hobby. This is for fun. <laughs> We never thought, it's interesting hearing that. It's like, because you had the backdrop of the success, like, to look at. You were looking at the success from, the you know, all the bands that got signed and thinking of signing as a success, right? right? Because it is. It's one step toward something different. Yeah. Um, and, and you were that guy who could, who and, the Midas touch. Who well, could it's sign. interesting. I went from not caring about any of that and hating that and stay away to that guy. Yeah. You were so, the you were I mean, the man. I ended up being the... You know. But for Rick Ruba, I mean, but but yes, and and gratefully I had that experience with Rick because it was I could still be kind of you know I could be cool. There was a good side with Rick, right? Like yeah. you could bring in something really well, artistic and off the wall, and he might dig it. I mean, aside, but, aside from um, what's his face in Minneapolis, what's the cat, that cat's name? He did in utero. What's his oh, name? Oh, Steve Albini. Steve Albini. Aside from Steve Albini, Rick Rubin was like. Oh, he's ten. T- he's a hundred. But times. I'm just saying, like in yeah. terms of like respected. Yeah. Business. I mean, you know. he is the demigod of producers. Really. Right. I mean, you can't name anyone that has cross collateralized, meaning like Dixie Chicks to Chili Peppers to Slayer, Johnny Cash, Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys early. Yeah. yeah. When he was uh, when he started, you know, Def Jam with R- Russell Simmons, they. Right. Uh, they had the Beastie Boys and LL Cool J, like Public pu- Enemy, all that stuff they found together. Yeah. And so, and for context, um, Rick Rubin is a like a giant white guy with a human... Not giant anymore. He had a... Oh. Well... 
He's, I'll just say this. He's skinnier now. Okay. But he's tall. No? He's six, yeah, maybe six foot. Okay. Yeah, six foot. And has Five a 11. long beard. He looks like, he's, has in, a long like beard, he's in ZZ Top. But, kind of. but he's super super thin now and tan and... and it's weird uh, to see, but he so looks is healthy. my is my description of you know trying to get the the Midas touch uh, accurate? Did I have an accurate picture of um, what I, my financial and life prospects were like? You know, even though it was never going to happen, mm-hmm. but that was the golden ticket I was trying to grab for, and it wasn't when when I found out it wasn't really a very desirable thing. Did I have an accurate picture? Um, I still, I, I think people still wanted it, no matter what. You could tell them ten out of ten bands we signed failed. You'd still want it because you'd think you're the one that would succeed. And most bands had that, like you know. And, but so you would see that you would be talking to bands, and they'd have that no clue the, the, that they're that they're shitty and, and starry eyed. You know, uh-huh. they're just like we're gonna be the next big thing, and you're mm-hmm. like, no, you're no, not. You're not. You're not even gonna be a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah. It, you know. And I, I had. Yeah, you know, I was on panels a lot too. So you know, being Rick's guy, being on panels in you know Manchester at an g- awesome conference called In the City. That was um, that was pretty amazing, um, and had a lot of it. You know, one on one time with Seymour Stein over there, which is a, a an A and R legend. Um, he signed the Ramones and Madonna and everything in between. Did, did but, you sign anyone big? Well, my claim to fame is Brandy Carlisle, local okay. star. Um, and um, I discovered her. Um, but the downside, going back to the downside of Rick, is you could bring in that alternative, that really wild thing that he might like, whereas most major record companies would not allow that. But on the other hand, you couldn't bring in a modern rock band like a like a Breaking Benjamin, which I did, that sold 10 million records because he wouldn't get it. And I know I try to sell him on the business of it. Like we can make money on this so we can do all these records. He'd already done that with Def Jam, so he didn't have that sense of urgency or see it that way. He he would just say, no, I don't want to put that on my label. And I didn't disagree with him, but it was also one of those things that like had those things happen. My career goes different directions. I mean, we showcased the killers, um, and they were going to sign with us until some sh- some uh, shenanigans happened. What do you mean? What happened? Well, over the weekend, we were going to sign the Killers to American Recordings, um, and we had almost a red line copy, which is a final version of the deal, ready to go on a Friday. And I think there were a couple deal points, like, we'll get those on Monday, you know, type thing. And we came in on Monday, and I noticed a like, serious sort of depressive vibe um, with my GM and the other A&R guy that I worked with. And I was like, what's up? And they told me that the killer signed with Island. Now, at that time, Island Def Jam was our parent company. Rick was a boutique label at a certain point in his career, which meant he just plugged in to labels and brought us as talent, scouts, uh, A&R execs, and used the marketing, publicity, and all the record companies, different uh, staff. So he didn't have to hire his full staff. And then there was a joint venture deal put together on that. Um, so, But there was a no-compete. That that wasn't held. It wasn't held. And and they ended up taking that deal. And um, so that, that stuff happened. Does that mean that you earn less money when that happens? Yeah, it means significant. <laughs> I mean, if you, you, know, you look back, you're the A&R guy that signs the Killers, which was Rob Stevenson eventually. Um, from Island Records, and ended up being a president of Capital, president of like, and so, you get royalties. 
as an A&R guy, you get royalties. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. So you get, As like, long as you stay at the record company that you sign them at, as soon as you leave, your royalties leave. Oh. So that's the... When you get hired, they say, if, you know, you get X amount percentage of... Yeah. The sales of the bands that yeah. are attached to you—it's sort you of like points. it's sort points. of like when you walk into a jewelry store, if mm-hmm. if you know that's a commission essentially. Of, yeah, of, right. Yeah. I mean, when when the net after everything's paid, um, the net earnings of a song or a record um, becomes a hundred percent, a hundred points, and you got to you had to dole out those points. So a producer like Rick would get ten, fifteen points. Which turns out to be whatever that hundred percent left is, and he gets a good deal because he's Rick Rubin, right? Yeah, and a huge used to get very huge producer fees, front end, back end, and points. I mean, back other in, producers might not get anything, not anything close to him. Yeah, and and most of producers are hustling, like you described earlier, like recording bands they hate. Yeah, um, a lot of them are because yeah. the world. What was your point? Changed. What was your points? I think as an A and R guy, you got ten points or something. Really, five points, five to ten. So if you you could, your whole career could be on one band. Oh, totally. Wow. Yeah, my friend signed Nickelback, which he doesn't brag about, but you know what? He's got a smile on his face. He bought a house in New York for the rest of his life. Well, not as long for the as re- he stays. As that. long as he stayed, and he left. Oh. Um, but when you leave, you use that success to garner a huge, bigger salary when you go somewhere else, for sure. Okay. Yeah, you get promoted, and something in in records you. Typically had to leave to get promoted. Yeah. Um, so when you saw all these bands, because there were times when I was playing in Seattle and we'd play with other bands that I didn't know, and I'd be like, oh my God, that band is amazing. <laughs> like they're they're playing as shitty clubs as I am with mm. as few people coming to their yeah. show as I am, but there's something obviously awesome about that band. I remember there was this one band I played at uh, I played with at uh, the old Ballard Firehouse, and they they had they were sort of a like a Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of thing, which is a hard thing to pull off. You know, it's it's a hard thing Don't to get me started on the peppers. <laughs> but you know, it was it was a popular, it was a fun, um, polished, uh, you know, style that was hard to pull off. Anyway, and. You know, great voice, great stage presence, great hair. You know, they had it all. And I was like, man, that band's going to make it. And then, you know, a year later, we're we're playing with them again, and they're still playing these shitty shows. And I was like, huh, I thought for sure, like, someone was going to nab them up. So from my little microcosm, mm-hmm. I'm seeing, like, these these really great bands from from my sort of comparison. Mm-hmm. You're on the other side of this chasm where you're seeing, like, the best of the best, right? And uh, how does what is that like? Because um, you know you're probably seeing bands. You're like, yeah, you guys are awesome, but this is never going to work because X, Y, and Z. Like, what was that like? Far and few between. Like the Brandy Carlisle. I mean, that's a that's a uh, that's an art a lifetime artist, and I really honestly knew it then. I knew that she could have a career as long as she wanted to. Um, when after I met her, saw her, listened to her writing, um, and those are not a dime a dozen. Those are far and few between. So like on the outside, a young girl sitting out there or a young boy that's just like, I want to be like her. I love that. Go do it. Go try it. Yeah, definitely. Pursue your dreams. I'm not trying to shut that down, but like not everyone gets that far. There's 90 other singers that didn't. 
and what makes her so special in my opinion is her voice um her artistry um her ability to write songs her her commitment to the craft um her knowing the talent around her and and knowing that she needs the twins Tim and Phil you know and they they contribute a whole hell of a lot to that they're a team um so when you see that you go crazy and you want to sign it like yesterday and really? that's yeah so you know you're not going to see that again for maybe in in your lifetime so when you would see something it would be like they are the cream of the cream of the crop i would I, there were different levels so one i would be like that that's ki- the kids like that i can see that within the kids market whatever the kids were, the mustache kids living in Williamsburg, New York, or Los Feliz, L.A., or Ballard in Seattle, that's kind of hip in that. And it's a business signing. Like, I like I didn't have... The pro- problem was I couldn't sign everything I liked. So I, And I had to pursue everything, whether I liked it or not, if it could be something that could sell. So there was a lot of stuff that you would see. And, and those would come in in the pitch to Rick. Like, this is not a personal love. I don't totally love it. However, you know, David Geffen and, you know, Guy O'Siri, they're looking at this band. We, if we want to look at it, we should look at it now. They have this song on the radio. That's how our, all of our pitches would start when we'd play music for Rick. Like, what's going on with this band? And you give them that 411. And then there's times like with Brandy where it was like, I love this. She's incredible. I don't want to build it up too much for your expectations, but I've never heard this before um, in my modern day. Like a modern day Linda Ronstadt meets like Patsy Cline. So how does she feel about you? I see. That's a good question. Um, I think she still feels today. We're really, we're in touch. Um, She's, I'm, I'm forever on her guest list. I flew to New York and saw her just recently um, on her first Madison Square Garden sold out show. MSG New York, this young girl that used to busk at Pike Place Market, you know, and just the humanness of her crying on stage, you know, and accepting that moment as, wow, I can't believe I'm up here. That's Brandy. I mean, she appreciates everything that comes her way and doesn't take any of it for granted. But yeah, no, I think, you know, she she did one of the coolest things. Um, uh, She does a Benaroya Hall shows probably every two years with... The backing band is the Seattle Symphony, and it's it's epic. If you could ever, if you ever, well, that's actually coming in February because she canceled the December shows because she had a throat injury. So they're coming up again if there's tickets available. Um, so she 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 from stage. This is about four years ago. I had my whole family there. She gave me eight orchestra seats, comped front five rows, and she goes every night. I you know look at the guest list and I you know I try to imagine. Oh, yeah, they're coming tonight. Cool. And tonight I found this name, and it reminded me of early days, and this guy flew me to L.A. twice and wouldn't stop. Wouldn't stop. Nothing would be possible without him. All this stuff, she said. And I get choked up telling it because it answered that question that you just said. How does she feel about me? Because I didn't know. I always knew that we were in business, and and but I loved her like as an artist and as a person, and... It was returned that night. Like I, I realized that she she was grateful for it, and she goes, "You are, you know, you're always the first, and I'll always tell everyone that. And um, without you, um, and I'm sitting there with my family. My family's like hitting me in the legs, and 
I'm fighting back tears, but I'm also in the back of my mind going, she better say my name. <laughs> like, if she doesn't, like, what if I almost stand up and she goes, John Ross, and like, John Ross, who the hell is that? And then she called out my name and said, you know, this was your favorite song. I, I don't know if it still is. And then she played Shadow on the Wall, which still remains one of my favorite Brandy songs. Um, epic moment. Like, I was outside my body, you know. So that is how I'd answer your question, how she feels about me. Did you think about that feeling when you were getting demo tapes of that, um, I don't know, altruism of helping someone? Was that on your mind? That's interesting. You asked that. Um, um, it was in a different way than maybe one might think. Helping the band, I would be honest sometimes too, to try to help them to say, look, you don't want to sign here. You might want to go to a smaller indie label and work it up that way or something. This would not be the best fit for you. Um, because would be the label, that way to help them. Because the label wouldn't really uh, promote them well, well Because, enough. yeah, it was far and few between with our releases, too. We, we were very unique, or not unique, but Rick was very particular. Um, so we weren't like Sony churning out five, six records uh, a month or a week. Not a week, but, you know, a lot of records. We weren't doing that. So, you know, I would be honest. So I would be honest helping an artist that way and coaching them in the music business, right? And saying, this go, this person's cool. I would watch your back with that person, um, you know, in that regard. Um, and, you know, a lot of me was like, I, I was, I didn't want him to get signed. And because I felt that, like, knowing that we, what we know, most don't succeed, that, and their happiness that was equated to it and all that they, it made me feel like, God, this is not the right thing. So that's ultimately what changed me in the course of getting out of it was just like, I can't do this anymore. Um, I don't want to say I felt dirty, but it was like the you know, music business was changed and the salaries, my salary was too inflated and they were, you know, cutting back. And I thought, well, it's time. It's time to go. But, um, but before that, yeah, it was... Um, I don't even remember where I was. Well, how has it changed the music industry? Um, I mean, it's changing technology. I mean, anybody can make a record from their living room, right? Mm -hmm. um, GarageBand had been around for a while, but um, YouTube, um, the smartphone, and all the bands that became Instagram hits. So they don't need uh, well, uh, Rick Rubin anymore? Depends on what you want. Depends. Yeah. You know, and you know, if I were to be... I would like this is a lot largely what I did in LA like this is why I felt like this job really helped kind of transition me into therapy and being a, a therapist was counseling uh, artists and saying like I don't think this is the best move for you even if it was something they were super high on and the honesty that I was bringing to it I think really artists appreciated that yeah I, I was even after I decided to become a therapist um after I so I decided okay I'm not going to be I'm not going to open my own recording studio I guess the music industry isn't very fun um <laughs> or isn't what I th romanticized it to be sure and so after graduate cuz that was really the only reason why I got a business degree to begin with and and you know as I was about to graduate I hear this thing about no the career path you're on is awful and I was like oh god <laughs> so I just started working in business you know in in Bellevue I wore a, a suit and had an office and just worked in market research, but it wasn't my passion. Mm -hmm. I liked it, but it wasn't my passion. And so when I decided to become a therapist, um, 
which just popped in my head at the, at, when I was 24 years old, I uh, thought, ooh, you know what I should do is I should I should uh, be a therapist for my tribe, which is musician, yeah, yeah, yeah. musicians and bands. Yep. Because bands, um, I've always said from, you know, early uh, in my experience with being in bands is being in a band is like being married, but you can't have sex to make up. Like, like either make up or make it work, <laughs> but either, uh, you know, like you, uh, you have all the involvement and all the need, mutual needs, the, yeah. the sleeping next to each other, the dependency, the, the bickering, the, um, you know, you, you get annoyed, you get, you know, you get on each other's nerves, but, um, there's no, uh, expectation of physical intimacy to actually kind of smooth it over. And so there's all this. Um, you know, centrifugal force for people to get thrown apart, and you know I'm a Beatles fan, and um, and was uh, you know sad that they ever broke up, that kind of a thing, and uh, the Pumpkins uh, was they they were they had these notorious for all this uh, in, internal strife from personality clashes. You know, mm-hmm. Billy Corgan is, I think, uh, you know, a piece of work. If, if I'm going to say, uh, he's got some control issues. I think is I'd say, yeah, some of those. I think he would admit it. You know, and yeah. and and so, um, and uh, Darcy has drug issues. And anyway, so they, I think they all did. Anyway, and of course, sort of Chamberlain. Anyway, the point is, is that I was like, ooh, I'm going to be a therapist for bands. So after I graduated, I started, okay, well, now I'm going to hang a shingle and I'm going to advertise myself as a therapist for bands. And guess what? No Nothing one, happened. No one wanted that. That's be- what's happening with me in some ways. How so? It's interesting you say that because, well, I put to, when, I, when I put together my webpage, um, I wanted to... Of course, being that, like I would, I could never be the guy, and I, and I, no judgment at all. I think it's, it's actually hasn't been suitable for me that I can't put the suit on. I just can't. I will starve. I will like go late on my bills, and it's horrifying to me, like I, to do, yeah, to do that. I, yeah. I don't feel true to it, even though it's like you know means to an end. Um, I still have that, you know, that that core. Punk. That core thing, I guess it's still there, yeah. But people call it lack of maturity now, you know. <laughs> Not Seattle. Not Seattle, yeah. Well, um, what was the initial question again? Sorry. Well, so... I got a little drift you, off there. Um, are you yeah. planning on becoming a oh, therapist the sh- yeah, for, yeah, yeah, for yeah. bands? Um, so I thought that, that, yeah, I want my tribe to come. You know, I think it would be, uh, I'm perfect at it. I did interventions in Los Angeles with celebrities. I mean, it's like, I'm good at this and this is, they need me, right? That's what I think. Yeah. Um, and I put together this website and which I art, was more artistic. And I was like, I don't want to be like anybody else's website. I don't want my picture to look like anybody else's. So, so I, you didn't have a babbling brook with some didn't. stacked, <laughs> some stacked rocks. That's what Catherine always says. No lotus flowers for you or stacked rocks, Brendan. Yeah. Um, yeah. The lotus flower kind of triggers me. So, um, no offense to those that have it. It's just not for me. And that's not who I am. Whatever that represents. Uh, listen, I don't even know what that means. But so this picture. Um, People were like, yeah, that's cool. You know, it's cool. I have a fedora and I'm like pocket square and, you know, this kind of look that I was like, you know, I want to look a little different and capture myself in this picture. And I don't think I hit the mark and I'm not even in the Venn diagram at all. I don't think because people are like now saying, 
yeah, it'd be cool if you ran an indie label, like a record label. That's a great picture. Or an author or something. And I'm like, use it for your bio page, but not for your landing page. And I was As like, a therapist. Yeah. And I was like, shit. And I realized, I don't know what a therapist looks like for Brendan. I don't know what that looks like. And it's fa- in fact, it's happening right now it, with collaboration from Catherine and others to like, you know, I actually got a haircut, um, which my hair was much just more, didn't just messy and I don't care. It's still messy, but it's shorter. Um, and now I'm like, you know, back in the, the game of I need to shoot a new picture um, because my tribe's not coming. And that doesn't mean they're not going to come. I don't so think. you're trying to appeal to but musicians. I thought, yeah. I talked to, you know, my, my friend Erica Cruzen, who's the j- executive director or director of services at Music Cares through the Grammy Foundation. And she was super excited to know they finally got licensed. And so I'm on a referral list for Music Cares clients. Um which is a great thing for you artists out there that are listening. If you need support or help, alcohol, drug-related, or financial services, see Music Cares. Look at the Grammy. Uh, I think it's Grammy.com. Search Music Cares, and there's always events funding it, big events, big artists, big people that are sober. And, and um, it's a rich, uh, it's a really well-funded program that helps musicians anywhere. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... You know, so I do want I, to I, see those folks. I hung a shingle in 97 before the internet was really yeah. in full swing. And yeah. so there was there was no way. Uh, what was I going to do? Put flyers on, on, on you know, telephone poles around around the city? Yeah. Um, I guess, actually, that wouldn't have been a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. I think about yes, it. you should have. <laughs> but, um, um. but, you know, maybe it'll work out for you. But what I discovered was, you know, in order to make a living, yeah. there's a flow of of clients there's like a i always metaphor i just think of this river of of clients that are coming down this this mountain yeah and you got to get into the river and you can you gotta stand get into the river you, you can stand outside the river and be like well i hope a new river forms or i hope i hope some of these musicians get out of the river and come find me over here i guess right maybe but i feel i'm feeling that way right now yeah it's and maybe there's a way to do it you know what i mean and it's you know marketing and um and I guess, you know, a stopgap or a, a compromise is, okay, I'll get in the river, I'll, I'll, I'll see the, the regular people that come to therapy, but I'll always be also marketing this other side of me. And maybe in 10 years, yeah. half my clients will be the sort of clients yeah. that I are my dream clients. Yeah. It's, you know, I feel the same way. I mean, it's what I know. It's my past. It's part of who I am in a huge way. So I want to let people know that I have that past in the history. Um, so if you're like-minded, like thinking, whatever, you know, arts, I'm attracted to artists. So maybe you might be too. I'm also very artistic. I think in therapy, um, it's, um, it's one of those things that I, I feel is a, my new art form. And I love it. I love sitting with a person. It's some, it's just in, in being a part of that process for me is, um, it's really, I don't know. There's just some freedom about it. It's just getting out of your own head, getting in some other space, collaborative space with somebody that has nothing to do with you, mm-hmm. which is what I need more of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I need to get in the river. And for the river to me, Kurt, is I think I'm putting on a suit. And, Kath, you know, and I always go back and forth with Catherine and others. It's like, no, you're, you're, you're you in the river. But I yeah. equate getting in the river as some sort of conformity of selling out of sorts. Yeah. I can't get through, like, 
and I don't want to be represented that way. So I'm trying to find, this is happening like live and now, so it's interesting you brought this came up. I'm trying to find my way to that. In, in the end, I'm a therapist for everyone, I think, or most people. Yeah. Not just musicians or artists. Yeah. But um, I wanted to use that calling card and that experience. It's it's a, a lot of things are experiential, right? Yeah. I mean, the I don't know where it's going to go. The sort of optimistic and perhaps Pollyanna-ish mm-hmm. way of saying this is, sure, you know, you you could. There's a Venn diagram there where you can yeah. absolutely be yourself and um, get in the river. You know yeah. what I mean? There, why not? But, you know, another way of looking at it that I, because I, as a, you know, supervisor of post-grad people yeah. for, you know, 20, and, and being in private practice myself for 20-something years, uh, I think a long time ago, I gave up on all of that. And I said, look, <laughs> like, you know, when people are going on the internet to to choose a therapist, yeah. which is like 98% of the time, right? Um, maybe they get a, you know, word of mouth, but then they go to your website and they look at you. It's the first, it's the, it, that's the thing, the picture. It's the picture. And if you look and, and I've, and I've seen other people look at picture, you know, I'll, I'll observe them. They'll, you know, they'll look at the, they'll be like, okay, oh no, it's like Tinder, you know, it's like, no, 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 right. no. Right, and yeah. maybe you don't even know what no is. You have no idea. <laughs> you, just, you just know it's no. Yeah, you just like, I don't like that face, you know, that's not the face I want to talk to. And it's complete crap because until you meet someone like on right. Tinder, you have really no idea right. the vibe they have. Right how they listen, how you're going to fit with that person. And so uh, and I so I tell my, you know, postgrad people I'm like you have to conform to what appeals yeah. to the greatest amount of people if you want to have a successful business as a private practice therapist, which means you can and what I tell people is you have to take a number of pictures from people who actually dictate the picture for you and then you have to give in a very, you know, objective way, pictures to people that don't know you and say, out of these five pictures, which one would you, which of these therapists would you go to? That's the way to run a business. You know, that's the logical way. That's the the thing that you just said. It's running a business. It's like, do I run, you know, and that clashes with some of, you know, my belief system. And, um, and you're right. You know, that's the piece you said it. Like, I just had to give away all that stuff and surrender it all. And I'm just holding on so tight, and it, and I don't know why I'm holding on so tight to it. Um, I, I feel like if I jump in the water, like we were talking about, that I lose all that. And I know it's not true. Um, uh, so I'm looking. You know, I, I'm going to reshoot the photo. I would say this to anybody listening to this: send me a, <laughs> send me an email to my practice if you see my picture. Tell me what you think about it. Use nice language. Don't be mean. But I'm at Seattle Sound Therapy is the name of the company. And you can email me at brendan at seattlesoundtherapy.com. And um, I do con- I do free uh, consultations, too, to see if we're a good fit. So that's a part of it. This is a shameless plug. No, please. But but there's I two mean, part, part, I want to know what they think. I want to know what well, people think. Well, and part of it is there are... I know people listening right now who don't live in Seattle, unfortunately, Yeah, who are just like, oh my God, that's the perfect therapist for me. Yeah. Tell me why I'd be the perfect therapist for you if you are that person. Right. Like if you well, hear a musician this- who down to earth and, you know, no bullshit. And, right. 
uh, you know, people, there's, there's a lid for every pot. There's a therapist for every client. And um, as the listeners know, it all comes down to that fit. And, and, you know. and you're right. The pictures does nothing for what's happening in that room. Yeah. Nothing, but it gets him in the room. Right. And I, and I think that's, you know, so what's the, and I feel like it's bait. That's the thing. It makes me feel creepy. It's like, yeah. I'm like trying to hook you as a client um, and the picture of me being me is not right. It's weird. Yeah. It's weird. So I'll use it probably for a bio page unless I get strong response to not to it. But I mean, a, a way of, you know, swallowing the pill is yeah. what, like you said, once they get into the room, they'll get to know you and then maybe word of mouth. Yeah. Because right now you're at a stage where you don't have enough word of mouth yet. Right. And maybe at a certain, because at a certain point for me, for example, um, even, well, anyway, I don't have a web page with a picture that's advertised that way because yeah. everything is word of mouth. And so the word of mouth will have yeah. nothing to do with your picture and everything to do with your personality. Yeah, right. So it, maybe it's, you know, the bouncer is the picture. And, <laughs> yeah. and then later right. you can you can slam dance. Yeah, right. I Yeah, I've got to get on the list first, right? Yeah. You got to be nice to the bouncer. I'm going nice to be a good the, boy. I got to get into the club first. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean... It's it's true, um, and you know, part of me thinks I'm trying to control the outcome too much too. Mm. What do like you mean? I, like I need to let go oh. and just do the things that are proper to set up a business without overthinking it. Which is mm. a picture that re- a relatable picture, an honest story, who I am, how I work, and let whoever comes come yeah. instead of trying to fish for salmon in a trout pond. Maybe yeah. I don't know. Um, I did get a musician client, and I have had musician clients, and that's great. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's also a pool I'm familiar with, right? So if I was in L.A., I feel like I would be full already, not because of how great I am, but just how many people I know yeah. that I could call executives and go, look. Do you know anyone who I'm, needs Yeah, <laughs> and they're like, anyone. I got eight bands right now that are on the road that they need some therapy. So yeah. See, that, that would have been my perfect gig, you know, because <laughs> yeah. uh, there was that documentary with Metallica. Oh, yeah. That yeah. they, you know, had their sort of strife and yeah, they, went, yeah, yeah. they went to a therapist. and Monster something? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I just thought, man, that is like the gig. Because I, I had the feeling that the band hired her as their as her only client or something or you know like half of her week was spent just with the band and yeah and that was always my dream because i wished that in the bands i was in we i had someone or the money to actually pay a therapist to be that for us we could still do it kirk we still good well, let's let's give it a shot. I mean, we could. I mean, you know, and and just like it's needed, and, and, and just and, like the record deal, I might give you a little bit of insight to say, be careful what you wish for. Why? What? What? What do you mean? Working with a musician is um, uh, often I can, like uh, I can take it. Yeah, you probably can. Um, and it's you know just look. I don't want to pathologize anybody. I, I I'm the first to explain diagnosis by symptom and ask a client how they feel about it. And if they agree with it, if anybody's diagnosed them before I say anybody is schizophrenic, it's a person with schizophrenia. This is a, this is not all of who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, there's a lot of symptomology of just personality disorders that exist totally. And, but it's really, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's an art to do, to talk to somebody like that. Yeah. And I think well, you, you would know, I mean, you talk to so many of them. 
and you can get a long way on the road. So that that model of going on the road and being in their living room and in their office, essentially, yeah. is kind of a unique model yeah. that we don't get to do that. You don't get to go to your client's house right. or go to their work yeah. in their space, yeah. right? They always have to come to our space. Right. So there's something to be said about probably the catharsis or the, you know, um, that could come from that or... Or the efficacy that can come from that. I don't know. Yeah, and and everyone wants it, right? Mm-hmm. The execs wants it, want it because they get more productivity and yeah. you know, and less risk of canceled shows or missed profits. Right. The fans want it because they don't want their band to break up. They you don't know? want Axl Rose to maybe go on stage. When Jimmy Chamberlain <laughs> left the Pumpkins, you know, because of issues, yes. I was heartbroken. I was like, he's 90%, he's great. He's 90% of the band. Yeah, he's and, great. And that kind of thing. And so if they only had a therapist, you know, to really, or a team of people to, yeah. to and, and, heal. And, and why to, not somebody like me that's been there, done that, and right. all that to say, look, I understand where you are. And they could look at me and go, I bet he does. Yeah. Um, right. In so. that trust that, you know, we talk about, right, in therapy, what is it, common factors, right? That the connection between clinician and and um, client is paramount. Yeah. I said it's 40%. I think it's higher. I mean, we got to, we have to connect. The relationship, yeah. Yeah. So what would be your uh, dream band as a client? Past, oh. past present. Past, past. past or present. Now do I have to go on the road with them? Um. Pro- well, you got to you got to be in the mix, right? I, I mean, mean, so I'm I'm a person's therapist, twenty four seven. One, you're the person. whole band's therapist. The whole band, isn't that a? Con- I mean, that's like they're a they're a system. So I'm like got to get into my Murray Bowen now. Yeah, um, they're a system. Or my IFS. I yeah. love the IFS stuff. But yeah. um, wow, the four parts that make a whole, right? Yeah, internal family system work. Um, God. I think about like if there was an easy one, I'd want this one. If there's a hard one, I want this one. Um, well, that's a tough question. Um, I would have liked to go back in time to be Kurt's guy on the road. Okay. I honestly think he needed people that didn't want anything from him. Yeah. I didn't want that leather jacket, right? He yeah. gave it to me. Yeah. But I didn't want anything from him. Um, and I know there were others that didn't and people that loved him, a lot of people. Um, but just to have. And, and, you know, earn that trust that he listened to me like, you know, it's okay that, you know, this is okay. Don't worry about this, right? And he could have a buffer. And, I, you know, I, who knows? Maybe he had some of those folks, but you're asking a hypothetical, so I'd like to be that guy. Great. Because there's a part of my arrogance and my narcissism, I'm I guess, sure he that says he'd still be alive. Yeah. But, but you know, who knows? I don't I don't think that's a stretch. Um, um, yeah, absolutely. But I don't want to get into that... To, to equate this to saving anybody either at the same time, but but it could. Imagine if he could. had someone to help him yeah. that week. Or if he'd let them, maybe. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people wanted to, but like we were talking about, people have motives and the label wants it, yeah. but they don't want, do they really want him to be okay? Or do they really care about the money? I mean, it's business. Well, it's a win-win. It's a win-win, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, you know, Silva managing him was a great manager, um, because I think John actually cared, oh. um, and Danny Goldberg, um, and all these other folks that were involved. There were some that cared. A lot of people that cared in his life. Um, um, but yeah, at the point where he was so shut down and and whatnot, I, I that night when we traded in the club, 
that I had that feeling of what we, you just asked me. Like, I want, I want to be in his life for that. And, and, and it wasn't being a groupie or any of that kind of yeah. junk. Yeah. But do you remember Sunday Day Real Estate? Of course. Uh, great. They were great. Yeah. I yeah, loved yeah. them. Did, did, did you, did you know, did you hang out with those guys? No, I didn't really. They, they were kind of like on the, when I moved to LA, I think oh, okay. like there was that whole like next wave with like yeah. Death Cab and, yeah. um, which, uh, Death Cab for Cutie. Right. Which I, I just feel like it triggers me to want to punch a wall when I hear Death Cab for Cutie, that name, but yeah. whatever. Um, <laughs> their first couple albums I really like, Modest Mouse is yeah, around that Modest time. Mouse. Yeah, Modest Mouse. Yeah, and then these bands start getting signed when I'm in L.A., and I'm like, really? You like that band? Yeah. All right. And, you know, they did well. The, the Shins. The Shins, yeah. You know, that, that type of rock, I think, was all started by Sunny Day, you know, in a way. Okay. And I think, you know, didn't Will Goldsmith go on to play with the Foo Fighters for a minute until Dave Grohl replaced him? Um, well, I think. isn't the bassist of Foo Fighters from Sunny Day? You might be right. I can't tell I think, you that. I, I think yeah. that's true. Yeah. I'm Somebody not, out there is yelling at us going, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty is. sure. I'm pretty sure yeah, it's the yeah. bassist. Yeah. Um, not entirely sure, but definitely a, a similar bass style anyway. We're the rock stars. That's what I say. It's like, I came from a rock star era. Man. I mean, they, it, these are quintessential icons. Cobain, Lane Staley, Chris Cornell. I mean, even Eddie Vedder. Not even Eddie Vedder, but Eddie yeah. Vedder. He's not from here. That's why I said even, but... Yeah. You know, it, that, and then you get dudes wearing jean jackets that look like everybody you'd see in a coffee shop. Yeah. Like, for me, I'm like, where's my star? <laughs> and I struggled with that in L.A. when we were talking about signing a band. And Rick was with me on it. He was like, we need a star. I want a star. We can, anybody can go sign a band. We need a star. Yeah. And that's why, like, Brandy Carlisle. Is far and few between. How'd you how'd you discover her? Where'd you see her? Um, I got a, a demo from her attorney at the time, Michael Barber, who was representing her in Seattle here, and sent it to me. And he said, you know, I think he's, we and I used to joke, but he'd say, I think you're going to love this. Like uh, managers and lawyers used to tell me that all the time. And I'd say, stop, don't ever tell me that. You know, it makes me not want to like it, just being a stubborn ass. But don't, you know. You're not doing your band any justice by telling me what songs to listen to either. Like like David Geffen used to say, "Say in your lane." You know, you're you're sending me this and I'll listen to it. And as soon as I listened to it, I had to play it again and again. I remember the moment in my office at Island Def Jam, which is above Hustler store in Hollywood, right on Sunset Boulevard across from the Whiskey. I'm sitting in that office um, where there are a lot of fuzzy memories, but this one was clear as day going, holy shit, what is this? Like, this seems like I'm listening to an old Patsy Cline, Linda Ronstadt type of record, like with harmony and, uh, I mean, just, I mean, you feel, when you, feel, when you hear it, the first thing that happened is my hair went up on my arms. It's like, and that's rare. Um, and so he sent it to me. And then she says, I, you know, I wrote these songs over the weekend and she sent, I think, a, ta uh, a CD, which I still have a lot of this stuff, um, uh, with the song Follow, for those that know her, great song, Shadow on the Wall, and I think the, the story was on there. Like, I just wrote these and recorded these this weekend, and that was the next three songs I got from her directly, and I was like, this is done. So I flew up, Seattle from LA, oddly coming back home. Met the, met the manager. We were sitting probably as far away as I've ever been in the Paramount Theater. I didn't know it went up that high. Way in the back, these seats. And out comes this dot 
I couldn't even see what she looked like. Um, I couldn't at all. It was so far away. And then she started singing and the hair went up again. And I looked at him immediately and said, I got to have, I got to have her. I got to sign her. Um, um, and you know, she came back to, I was staying at the W hotel, her and the twins, Tim and Phil Hanseroth came back and we, you know, partied a bit and had some fun. And that's when the relationship began, but it was a no brainer from the beginning. And, and that, that I don't think ever happened to me. A no-brainer ever in mm. my A&R days. Mm. There was always a like, mm, mm. Yeah. This, I didn't care if she had a radio song yet. I didn't care if she, you know, I didn't think about talent. I know how, who she was touring with. She was opening for Johnny Lang, by the way, that night. And then she went down to Portland with Johnny, and I went down to Portland with the band, rode down there with them, and watched her again in Portland while I'm texting or paging at that time with a two-way page. Rick going, oh my God, we got to, you know, and he's like, okay, calm down. But I was like, God, I can, and then it's like the fear of somebody else is going to get her. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, and you know, you showcase any band with Rick, people know. And if Rick, we got known as they'll showcase anything (laughs) because Rick would let us, he liked them. He would allow us in the budget to do so. So if we thought we wanted to put it in front of Rick, we would fly him in from anywhere to play in front of Rick. So, but people would, people would definitely say, well, I wonder what, why is Rick looking at it? It must be kind of cool. So you had a time, you had to move fast if you were going to do something. So now I'm just like asking you random questions. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you ever meet First Aid Kit? Do you know them? No. Swedish? Anyway. Uh, Uh, What other bands from, from Seattle back in the day would you, oh, um, Built for Spill. Yeah. Built to Spill, sorry. Built to Spill. Yeah. one of my favorite bands. So that was another moment, um, you know, fast forward from uh, Could You Be the One uh, from Who's mm-hmm, Do mm-hmm. to like 92. And my band is playing at Dutch Ned's. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah, on the email, I think you mentioned that. And I was, oh, okay. I was like, yeah, I remember it. Yeah, it was a very... Um, it was after I left or right after maybe. mid-90s. Yeah, it was a very... Um, they, they had music every night. They didn't have a stage. They just sort of allocated yeah, part yeah, of the bar. Right. But um, they basically just let us play like whenever we wanted for the entire night and all of our friends would come and it was just kind of this. Anyway, we play there a lot. And I remember uh, someone had put on the jukebox, um, you know, uh, Seasons is the song. Right? Um, you know, Come yeah. through anytime, you know, anyway, it's their number two on their, their, their big album. Anyway, Built a Spill. And when I heard, just heard like five seconds of that song, it was before the shins. It was before Death Cab. Way before, you know, it was before all that stuff. And when I heard that song, it was like, "Oh my God, what am I hearing?" You know, and it just it changed mm-hmm. everything I understood about what music could. So rare, isn't it? Yeah, that's rare to happen. Yeah, and so anyway, did and what do you do with that, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, and, I tried to mimic it with every song I wrote it, after that. Right, point. and you you try to find a band that lives up to it, and you find that it falls short. Therefore, what lies in front of you is something special. Yeah, that can't be met. Like yeah. my bar for signing an artist would then became Brandy Carlisle, and it's like shit. I might as well pack it up. Huh. I'm not going to sign anybody. Yeah. Um, then she, the, you know, then leave it up to her to have this. Uh, so the Madison Square Garden show, right? We fly, fly in for that. They have a tattoo artist backstage. And I was like, wow, that's cool. Um, I want one. Of course, I grab it. I hear the needle first. I'm like, Zzz. 
Like, I know that sound. Um, I have a bunch of tattoos. And so I was like, ah, where's this? Turns out uh, Amanda Shires was coming to the show to sing with Brandy. She's in the band High Women with Brandy. Um, and, um, um, which is modeled. I, I don't say model, but the Highway Men, you know, the Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, um, uh, Willie Nelson, I'm missing one, um, the four. Uh, anyway, um, they were the highway men, and so they came up with high women, not highway women. But anyway, um, and they were going to tattoo Amanda, and Brandy's like, tell them who you are, you know? Like, And so I went and said who I was, and I got the high women tattoo on my arm, as I'm showing you right now. Oh, cool. And so, uh, you know, just to have, I mean, that experience, that experience, I'll never forget it, not just because of the tattoo, but... When you, when you have those experiences, like when you listen to Built to Spill, or when I see Brandy, or when you see that show like that, um, it leaves, it, it's... Spiritual. It's a spiritual feeling. It's a moving experience where, like, for me, puts me in the greatest headspace. And then it fades away, though. Yeah. You know? And then Ar- what? That's art. And art and reality, right? Yeah. We can't sustain that. Like an addict. You can't sustain Brandy at the, you know, she's not playing there every night. Yeah. And if she did, third night of it, it wouldn't be the same as the first night. Yeah. And now you know why you had <laughs> deadheads. Yeah, I know. They're so high, though. I don't know if they know a song or... No. <laughs> <laughs> I worked Grateful Dead shows in Seattle. I always used to say I'd have to get paid. And I did to see the dead. It wasn't my thing. Yeah, not, not me either. I worked for Dan Bean Concerts in LA, mm-hmm. or in Seattle. And I was turf lead, which we always joke about. Um, what kind of title is that? Memorial Stadium, we'd have to lay turf down over the field oh. here in Seattle before we they let a band and the the, the crowd come on it. Yeah. And uh, anyways, four nights of the de- four days of the dead, the most junk de- garbage left behind by any other band I've ever worked with. Really? They're fans. I bet. Because the it's like a big picnic to them, I guess. Yeah, probably, yeah. but it just kind of co- contradicts a lot of the stuff. But anyway, <laughs> um, I digress. Um, well, in the final couple minutes here, yeah. anything else that we didn't get to you want to share? Um, you know, like we're talking about here today a lot of it's identity stuff i think that comes up for me in terms of how to be a look like a therapist today how to maintain myself who am i how do i correspond visually as well as verbally with folks um and you know i think that uh, one of the skills i have and one of the the things that i like to work with is that kind of stuff that realizing like really the older i get the less i know about me in a way and and I say that because the more I know, the more I need to know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. I, the the crumbs or the the, the things. Well, when you're younger, it's easier yeah. to uh, pigeonhole yourself. Yeah, not that I'm it's a, a punk rocker. Yeah, not and that's that it, all you have to be. It's not a bad thing, yeah. but it's but it's pretty easily defined, and yeah. that's all you need to know. And it defines who you hang out with, and the bands you like, and the attitudes you're going to have, and and it's not. It's not not real. It's real, but it's it's uh it's it's easier. But yeah. once you actually delve into who you are and um you know have some flexibility, then it's just like and options. Then it's just like, well, who am I? Then? Yeah, who am I? How I relate to the world and all of that. Um, and where do I where do I belong? And where do I belong? Um, 
And who belongs at my uh, across from me? In Maybe my you office? should start a Seattle punk therapist group. Oh, that sounds cool. I mean, there's got. I know there are others. Huh? Like a group of, like a group of old punk rockers that get together to talk about. How they're relating or not relating to life. Well, that and maybe even a marketing, you know, consortium, so to speak, of, uh, you know, mutually referring or I don't know, just that kind of thing. I don't know that tribe in Seattle. So if you are that person in Seattle or something, I be mean, in I, touch with me. I, I know, um, I you know, <laughs> I know people who uh, would say they come from a rough background who are therapists, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, yeah. and don't come from the typical... Uh, stereotype yeah um for sure well i mean i also want to add to this too that i work you know i do work i'm licensed to work with those with substance use disorder issues so um you know and whether you're at amazon or working at pagliacci or you are in a band or whatever if you have you know um if you have alcoholism or addiction or something that you or you're contemplative um, I like to treat the system as you're talking about, you know, the system part of it is, you know, treating a client. I've done this for a long time and treating a client, putting them back into a, a toxic system is just, it's just almost impossible for that person to gain any traction. Right. So I like to treat the system, which means mom, if you're pissed off about your, your kid or think your kid's taking pills and they're being a teenager, you could come talk to me about that. But I'd also like to do some group work. To where we can we can model some of this stuff. Now, it also has to say within the bounds of ethical treatment, you know, and not treating too many people of the system. But treating the system is my approach to it. Um, and I'd like to sign on more people than just a client that comes in the door to uh, coordinate with at least or to be in contact with and, and to have... Yeah, to have insight on the, his or her healing in the room. Yeah. That's how I like to do it. Well, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. I and mean, we do it again. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to find Brendan, you can find him at seattlesound.com. Seattlesoundtherapy.com. Seattlesoundtherapy.com. Or Brendan, it's B-R-E-N-D-O-N, at seattlesoundtherapy.com. One thing I will like, <laughs> would like to say is my friend brought up, like, well, do you do audio, actual audio therapy? And I was like, ah, oh, man, I didn't think of that. Like, I, I don't. My name, Seattle Sound Therapy, came out of Seattle Sound, like Puget Sound, right? Um, and Seattle Sound Music. I also thought of it as that. So am I putting too much of my music in the title and confusing people, right? Like, am I trying to be something? No, I thought Puget Sound. That's what Did I Did you think of it that yeah, way? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, Seattle Sound Therapy. Um, it's a, my own practice and yeah. Yeah. Well, it's that's been, it. If people are still listening... <laughs> Then um, you're you either have no other better podcast to listen to, or <laughs> you're actually interested in. Or you really need a therapist, this, maybe. Yeah, this, <laughs> you're, or you're very interested in this extremely niche, um, you know, kind of areas that we've been talking about. And maybe maybe you're a musician. Maybe you remember the grunge times. Maybe you know. Yeah. Uh, I actually I know some uh, listeners were in the biz um, as well. And I've, I've nerded out with them over email about like, so you knew them and you knew that, yeah. you know, it's just one of those things like um, for me. So this has been fun for me. Yeah, I guess I'll well, just good. say that. Yeah, me too. Um, so thanks for coming on the podcast and everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.